Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9am on Cork's Red FM. Fortunately, I'm the one that keeps about things, uh, keeps talking about the price of things that are going up. And we mentioned car park prices on Leaside for the multi-stories are going up yesterday. And of course, to get to them, you need petrol and you need diesel and they're going up as well. And the papers this morning talk about prices of the pumps to hit a record high. So you're looking at 177 uh, a litre. They're up again uh, last night by about two cents and a lot of this is being tied into the Ukrainian border crisis sending the cost of crude oil soaring. So um, it's uh, 32% now that's the cost of fuel rise uh, one calendar year following the other so this time last year you were paying 32% less meaning really when it comes to you know the amount of money they're spending um, to fill the old car. 40 euro more in a fill-up now. 40 euro more. So that's a front pager. Uh, there are other money-related stories. Big worry for credit unions um, who've been hit by a 78 million euro black hole in their pension fund could destabilise the entire credit union network. It be unfortunate because they've been going from strength to strength. And the papers this morning do talk about issues regarding, say, for instance, Russia. A lot of confusion. Like Irish fishermen, according to the Echo's front page this morning, have been given a guarantee by the Russian ambassador that their fishing grounds will not be affected by naval exercises off the coast of Cork next week. But then the front of the star says the Russians say that no deal was made uh, with regards to Irish fishermen. And they were actually told to avoid the live fire zones. Uh, like the, the confusion actually carries on with the Sun who are saying that fishermen are claiming a victory in the war game row while the embassy then have come out the Russian embassies come out and said that they deny absolutely that there was any guarantee given to fishermen when they met with the ambassador so I hope you get some clarification because the bravest of them all seem to be our fishermen at the moment Jason O'Gorman the Cork artist is doing some um, uh, art-related issue, art-related um, illustrations um, with uh, the Russians in mind. And he's got uh, an illustration of Vladimir Putin riding high on the top of the Shandon steeple, straddling uh, with, um, with reins around the salmon. So that's an interesting one. He's got another one of uh, Val- Vladimir Putin coming out of Jackie Lennox with a bag of chips or maybe a fish supper or something. Uh, So he sees the lighter side of it. He's even got Vladimir Putin, um, what looks like to me, uh, swimming with Fungi the dolphin. (laughs) I mean, there's a lighter side to everything, I suppose. Another story on Leeside makes the mail today, and that is the damages claim that has been lodged now in the High Court with regards to the Douglas Village Shopping Centre fire in August of 2019. Now, you'll recall that, of course, because it was big news at the time. Damages of more than 50 million are being are being sought over that massive blaze, alleged to have started when a 2006 Opel Zafira parked on the second, second floor of the multi-storey car park uh, caught fire. 50 million, and that's in the papers today. Um, of course, we're looking at the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday this weekend, and on Sunday there will be some very special commemorative events, and the papers talk of that. And the nephew of the pensioner uh, discovered to be dead in the post office, uh, Declan Hawney, he's 40 years old, he's now been charged. What's he been charged with? Two counts of deception. Now, I'm not quite sure what they mean when they say deception. It's probably a broad brush. We'll have to see what the courts have to say. But there's another court appearance, actually, by a chap by the name of Darrow O'Flaherty. Um, he had uh, uh, a court appearance yesterday um, for refusing to wear a COVID mask or to get a vaccine or whatever the case may be. Um, but I suppose you can, you can refuse to get a COVID vaccine, but you get into trouble if you're in court, if you don't go into, if you go into buildings without a mask. So that's where he was. But anyway, the point of this is being that in his court appearance, he claimed that he successfully cured himself 
uh, of COVID with tea, 7-Up, toast and paracetamol. Uh, And he said in court that he blamed himself for catching the virus because he didn't heed his granny's advice of not going to bed with his hair wet. So fair play, at least he's given us a laugh. There are a lot of, okay, well the price of petrol goes up. I probably should have mentioned these at the same time. Other things that are soaring, um, apparently Diageo are having a cracking time of it. Their sales of the black stuff, Guinness, through the roof. And that makes this morning star where they talk about sales soaring. And also another thing that's soaring is the amount of people who are asking for remote work. Uh, In the last few days now, we've seen the demand for remote working requirements quest uh, in the job is six times higher than it was before the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Six times higher. A bit of a clamour going on with regards to people wanting uh, to work from home. Papers also this morning, thankfully, and I'm so glad that the Echo and the Examiner have picked up on our stories over the past couple of days, and thanks for doing that, the Examiner and the Echo, with regards to parents who are living uh, with a child on the autistic spectrum and crying out for help and not being listened to. So our story, particularly regarding Dervila Burke O'Connor of Crystal Swing and her son Paul, makes both the Examiner and the Echo today. And that's really important that people pick up on that story and share it uh, to make change. I'll be coming back to it a little later on. Meanwhile, Dustin the Turkey is having a rido slam at RTE because they've axed the den. I think they brought it back for a while during COVID, didn't they? But axed it again. And Dustin... And also Ray Darcy himself can't understand why the show got axed because it costs nothing and it has huge viewers. <laughs> you know, what? you have television shows that please the viewer, you would think, wouldn't you? And if that had big numbers and kids loved it, why axe it? Other stories in the papers today. Well, I was talking earlier in the week, actually, about how influ- they claim that influencers do not influence people to buy products. I think that's a load of cod's wallop. I think they do big time, particularly when it comes to makeup and fashion. But they say that only like six or seven or eight percent of people are influenced. That's got to be cod's wallop. Kim Kardashian has a pants brand, P-A-N-T-S. It's called Skims Underwear. And apparently it's worth, this brand alone is worth 2.9 billion. Knickers. <laughs> it's a massive amount of money in underwear. So if it, had, if it didn't have Kim Kardashian's name on it, it wouldn't be worth topping. So that's the difference. And there's another one that, um, actually my wife showed me this one this morning. It's one of the online stories about how you can influence people. You wouldn't believe that um, Sex in the City, apparently I'll talk more about Sex in the City later on this morning, but Sex in the City's Steve Brady means nothing to me now. But you guys who are fans of Sex in the City... I'm quite sure there are many will know who I'm talking about. Apparently, he's got hearing aids. And Miranda Hobbs frequently reminds her husband, Steve, um, not to forget to put in his hearing aids in the show. This is the case, I'm told, and I'm okay with that. But Hidden Hearing have come out and said that they've seen a a 26% increase in people looking for appointments for hearing aids since um, the series hit the screens on the 9th of December. So (laughs) They're cool. People want them. They probably want hearing aids when they don't even need them. It's like how glasses can be sexy and funky, whereas in my day, of course, you got mocked for them. Uh, Conor McGregor, is, McGregor makes the online as well because he's taken his fiance Dee Devlin, on a €15,000 designer shopping spree. Really, Connor? 15000 Like, not 150000 uh, I mean, you would think that... 
I mean, 15 grand's a lot of money to anybody who's going shopping, but surely be to God, not Conor McGregor. But it got me thinking of shopping sprees. And it also then got me thinking of the things that you bought that you really regretted. And I'm not talking about a, the big spends would include a house. You'd hardly regret that, I suppose, or a car. So I'm not kind of talking about those things. But things that you bought that you really, really regretted, um, particularly if they were big money, the bigger the price of it, the more I'd love to hear from you. Text 0868104106. Like Connor has a 15 grand shopping spree. And that pales into insignificance to Imelda Marcos, who was the wife of the president of the Philippines. Uh, she one day alone, in one day alone, in New York in a single day, spent $3 million. And that was in the 1980s. So you could probably say that that $3 million in the 1980s is like $10 million now. I mean, in the course of um, a 90-day trip, or sorry, a 90-day period, she spent $7 million, And this was quite regular. I mean, why, why was she able to spend it? Because they looted the country. They were robbers. They were thieves. They were crooks. They were frauds, herself and her husband. She had the biggest shoe collection in the entire world, apparently, back in the day. Imelda Marcos had 3,000 pairs of shoes. They found all the shoes when she fled the country in 1986. So three million in one day. Usually shoes, clothing and jewellery. Um, and in the space of two decades, and this is back in the day now, she and her husband embezzled over $10 billion which is probably closer to 50 billion, maybe even 100 billion now. And one or two other things then that have to do with how we look. There's some good research out this morning regarding, um, if you look at soccer players down through the decades and the different types of haircuts or hairstyles they've had, apparently Kevin Keegan's perm um, was the most popular of all time. Kevin Keegan's perm followed by Bobby Charlton's comb-over. I don't know whether you'd call them the most popular, but certainly the most memorable haircuts. I can tell you that back in the day, everybody wanted hair like Kevin Keegan or David Essex, the long-haired perm on the guys. Some of the other ones that featured, actually, the most memorable. Seaman's ponytail, um, David Beckham's mohawk, um, and also he gets into it twice because he gets into the top 10 again with his corn crows. You know, the lines through the hair, the matted lines through the hair. But Kevin Keegan's perm first, followed by Bobby Charlton's comb over, which he was forever wiping back over the side of his head. And then there's a lovely story in the papers today and the way we live and the world that we live in because they figure that only fools and horses could never be, be remade. The BBC are thinking about it. It would include Del Boy and Rodney coming back again. But they're figuring that David Jason and Rodney would never be able to get away with the one-liners or the cracks or the jokes or the abuse of only fools and horses from yesteryear. You know, Patrick Murray, he's 65-year-old now, he played Mickey Pierce. He's been in the papers recently because he's just had a cancerous tumour removed from his lung and we wish him well. But he says that they couldn't make it because the world is just too wokey now. He says you can turn a pair of wallies into a pair of wokies. And he gives examples of how only fools and horses wouldn't work. He says, like, you would never get away with constantly calling Rodney a plunker nowadays because people would find plunker offensive. He says, I don't think that the BBC would get away with Del Boy falling through the bar. Remember the bar scene? One of the most memorable scenes in comedy, in television. You'd never get away with that now, uh, in spite of being voted the best sitcom moment ever, because you'd never get away in this woke world with depicting two men on the pull in a wine bar.
And he's probably right. They also list the most memorable moments of Fools and Horses. Uh, one of them, obviously, is uh, trying to clean the chandeliers. Another one, apparently, they say, is Del, Go- Del Boy going hang gliding, hang gliding, trying to impress and flirt and woo a woman. Remember that? That was just so funny. And then there was one that you'd never get away with. Now, Del Boy buying sex dolls, which inflate with a flammable gas. Del Boy selling bottled water, thinking he's found a spring. It only turned out to be a leaky pipe. And, of course, dressed as Batman and Robin. They'd never get away with that now in the wake world. Um, or the, in the wakey world, as they're saying in the papers this morning. But for me, still the most famous and the most popular. And I think the funniest has got to be the, the bar scene. Anyway, lines open. Text 0868104106. The Neil Prenderville Show. With Tesco and the Good Grub Initiative. Helping to feed school children in need. Tesco. Every little help. And it's a free food Friday. So text who you are and where you are to 0868104106. And we'll do some shout outs. And I'll tell you more about what you'll win a little later on this morning. But I'm going to get stuck into this now because... Um, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of contradiction in the papers this morning and I know people are looking uh, at the lighter side of it as well with the different illustrations and uh, stuff that's being done online uh, involving Putin on Lee's side whether he's going to Jackie Lennox's or, Lennox's or on top of the Shandon steeple but on a serious note uh, the Russians are coming they're probably on their way the Russian Navy and will be off the west coast Cork, uh, west coast of Cork next week. Fishermen are having none of it, and they are going to go out by, by flotilla to protest. But I wonder if we could clear up some of the confusion as to how they got on yesterday at the Russian embassy with the Russian ambassador and what have you. Patrick Murphy, himself a trawler man for many, many years, and also the CEO of the South and West Fisheries, joins me by phone. Patrick, good morning. Good morning, Neil, and I'm sorry, I, I have a tear in my eye from listening to you. You bring back so many memories. It's hard to have a serious discussion after listening to Explosive Bill Boy. Following on anyway. from Only Fools and Horses, <laughs> from the sublime, I don't know whether I could call the what's the happening next week. Yes, the, yeah, the it, yes. Uh, yeah, it is, it is. Um, look, to, uh, I, I'm amazed I find myself in this position as a humble fisherman, as you said, as the CEO of the Irish South and West that we ended up filling the role of diplomats and uh, negotiators and meeting with the ambassador of That's because you're you know? not afraid. That's because you're brave. That's why. Or <laughs> a bit mad, whichever. You know, who knows me? Whatever the different But opinion. what happened yesterday? Some of the papers are saying that the ambassador gave a guarantee that fish stocks would be protected and nothing would happen. And then half an hour later, apparently, they came out and denied that they gave any guarantee to you. Yeah, but you see, if you look at the clip and what was said in that clip, the guarantee was that they would not go into the fishing area that is outside of the zone that they'd marked for the uh, activity, for the military activity. So that's where the guarantee was, which that was a given anyway. But it was misquoted that they, they weren't going to go in any, anywhere, you know. So, one second. Yeah. Like they'd be dropping, whatever they're going to be doing, they're going to be exploding on and under the water, aren't they? Imagine that would be the case. Yeah, but um, of course, this is a huge concern, and that's why we went to meet the ambassador. That's why we looked into this beyond our shoreline. Like, Neil, look, to put this in context, we hadn't a clue what was happening because nobody in our government was telling us what was happening. Now, that's a misstep, so hopefully that'll be rectified in the future because these exercises, would you believe it, are happening on a regular basis by whatever fleet is out there, and we, were never, we never knew about it. So this is the first one, I think, that ordnance is being fired up into the air and missiles being fired around the place, you know? Yeah. So that's, I'd say that's the difference. Yeah. So the other ones, and of course, the tension 
with the Ukraine. Nobody's yeah. blind or, 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 or not obvious to that. But look, first of all, I want to come back to a couple of things you said. So you said there's 50 million um, for the damages that are there. If yeah. you add another 13 to that, that'll buy you 60 of our fishing vessels. Uh, one third of the vessels that'll be going to the Porcupine because that's all the government is valuing them at. So that puts it in context of what we're really afraid of, which is annihilation. So the, the Russian incident outside there, of course, is a threat. And thanks be to God, we've met the ambassador, got assurances from him. The insurances were this, right? So people have to understand the role of the ambassador as far as I see it. He is the ears, the eyes, and the voice of Russia in Ireland. He's not the decision maker. So what he does, he takes on board our concerns, which we're very, very grateful for that he did. We had a very, very constructive meeting with this man. Like We didn't have any dis disagreements with what we were both trying to put across. And we came to an understanding. And that was a massive step forward from where but we were. But did anybody ask him, including you, as to why they've decided to do this off the West Cork coast? I mean, two-thirds <laughs> of, two of the planet is water. Like, why here? I'm assuming that this is a strategic area for all of them when they come to this area. So I'm assuming that's why it's there. I'm assuming, and I'm only assuming because he didn't say this to me, and I'm only guess working like everybody else, that this is a place that others have come to, to do these trials. So maybe they're thinking this could be an area of conflict. In the Who event knows? of conflict, that that would be an active area, Mother of God. Are you serious? Exactly. See, I don't know, Neil. You tell me. Like, we can only have guesswork. All our job was to do, right, as a fisherman's representative, was do the best that I could do, that I was requested to do by my members to make sure they could go out and go fishing. Yeah, That's okay. the bottom line for yeah. us. Yeah. We want to go out to this area go fishing because it's a lucrative fishery. It's only there for six months. If you don't catch the quota in the month, you lose it. Yeah. It's gone. You yeah. can't carry it forward. So it's really important that nobody interferes with that. Look, I had a skipper picture with me in one of our boats going through the weather. That's commonplace for our fellas. That's what we face. So, you know, a few Russian battleships around the place, you know, as long as they're not firing at us, we'll handle them all right, you know? So, <laughs> is there a flotilla organized? Have you got... Um Fishing trawlers ready to go. Talk me through what will happen. We're ahead of the game. Our boats are already out there fishing on the other side of where this activity is to be. But they're not there because of the Russians. They're there to make their living, as I said. This all boils down to boats going to a fishing ground to go fishing. And I know it's got massive media attention all over the world because fellas said, oh, the Irish Navy are the boys to take on the Russians. Not the case. All we want to do is go fishing. That's all we ever want to do. And we want to do it safely. So is it no, a case like that there are... So, all right, you could do it with more fish. Is it, a case that the, is it a case that the trawlers are out there and will continue to fish where they are? Or do you intend to steam towards the Russian Navy? No, let's explain this. The area that's going to be open in February is a closed area for January because we have stipulations on that area because of the, the sensitive biological nature and the fish that inhabit it, we can only fish there for a maximum of six months in the year because our quota doesn't allow us to fish there any longer. Yeah. So February is the starting point. So these boats in this specific area, that's where they need to go to fish. If you go into that area, we ourselves overregulated, as they would say, our boats, when they go there, cannot fish anywhere else. So our minister has told any boat, you go into this area, lads, whatever you catch, when you're coming in, you have to come straight back into port and land. You cannot fish anywhere else in the ocean. You have to come back. So they're restricted to that area. So let me see alone. if I'm understanding you. From the 1st of February, because the Russians will be 240 kilometers off the coast of West Cork. From the 1st of February, they will be fishing in the same area as the Russians. No. 
they'll be fishing in close proximity. How to close? Uh, maybe 40 or 50 kilometres. And why then are the papers saying that fishermen remain on a collision course with the Russian Navy? That's not true. No, it's not true. That's what we've averted. So we've made sure because they, the, what if the Russians wanted to stray or move around? So I'll give you an example. We, have, we were always against the seismic activity. It was going out in the same area, right? So we got maps from the Marine Institute and all the rest and these companies. Oh, lads, we're on inside this box. But what they didn't tell us was that it took two miles for them to turn around. But they did that turning outside of the boxed area. So they increased the radius of the box by two miles. So eight square miles, right? And but they never turned off the pingers. So they were still doing the same activity inside, you know? So taking that into account, learning our lessons as we do then 50 kilometres is very little for a warship, okay. plus ordnance going up into the air. So, so yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what so you mean. 50 kilometres is, cl- is quite close on a turn on manoeuvres, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. so when, then, in the event of them, in, clearly they'll be firing things, but I'm assuming yeah, yeah, they won't yeah. be firing any nuclear missiles or anything like that. But, <laughs> but, well, but if they do, you'll be hearing, it won't be Patrick Murphy will be talking for this, but it's that way. So let's assume that's not going to happen, but they'll be, they'll be firing other orn, ornament, uh, ornaments, ornaments, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, you know, armaments, done, armaments done, that will hit the water. And, what and what impact? Blanks. Yeah, blanks, is it? Well, I don't know. You tell me. I'm I wouldn't, just I wouldn't that, think that. I wouldn't think they'd be blanks. Yeah, yeah, but like they won't be live. In other words, what you're saying is they shoot a missile and there's a warhead on the end of it. But I'm assuming you know they're I mean? not going to go that far. But something yeah. will be exploding on and under the water. What consequence does that have for fish? Well, you see, this is where the agreement comes in, and this is where I can't give the operational details of what we've hoped will be the case that we've mitigated that damage. They'll compensate. Right? Is it the Irish will compensate? No, no, not compensate, mitigate. In other words, that if they were firing into a sensitive area, that would be a bad thing. So we're hoping that won't be the case, yeah. if you get to my drift. Yeah. Look, I have to be very cautious here because in fairness to the ambassador, that man is not the boss. He is doing a brilliant job for us, right? And I don't care whether people say that's not popular. We went to meet the ambassador of our, in Ireland from Russia. That man sat us down. We sat down with him. We had a fantastic meeting. Right. And what we were looking for, he agreed he's going to bring those concerns back to Moscow. If that's being jeopardized in between this and that happening, then that's a bad step for media, for ourselves, because trust me, it's difficult enough to get this off the ground in the start. We seem to be able to do it when our politicians can't. So, you know, we don't want to undermine it. Look, we want our boats to go out our fishing meal. And just to explain this, it's a very deep area of ground. There's specialized equipment on board our vessels that they've invested heavily in to be able to make sure this fish is the best in the world, you know, to be able to handle this fish. They're but you know, specifically to handle this fish. Just one second, let me finish this point. So, Neil, they shoot their nets and they're restricted to their movements. You know what I mean? They can't just swing the boat around because they'll tangle all the nets and everything else, right? So the only ones that can swing around and move are the Russian ships. They can turn on, to, on a tuppence. So we have to be cognizant of that. And we were able to explain all this to the ambassador and he understood what we were saying. And look, he was knowledgeable enough. He was really knowledgeable of how we were being shafted. Uh, yeah, but yeah, but he's, a, he's a diplomat, like. He's going yeah. to tell you what you want to hear and I'll send it back to Russia and to Moscow. But like that could be all just a crock of whatever, you know. But you, need, you see, here's the difference. He didn't have to do that. He gave out a press release and he, his statement was, stay away, to be reckless. So that's where it, was, that, where it was at. We were being told there's no negotiation. But he's there's not no the only one telling you back in the day to stay away. The Department of Transport also told you to stay away, didn't they? So, 
Imagine now, Neil, somebody told you that there's going to be activity and land or down the street or whatever else, and you know it's dangerous, so everybody stay away from it. You know, we have to earn a living outside there. That was absolutely reckless on behalf of a minister who's meant to be a green minister who was told by his fellow ministers, Minister Noonan, that it was supportive of the fishermen to be out there because our presence out there would protect the marine environment. And then this man who wants 30% of our waters to be protected under uh, uh, EPAs, Environmental Protection, right? That marine protected areas. He then undermines what we're trying to do outside there. That made no sense. And, and has anybody... Was re- that was has any government was minister or government officials met the fishermen? I mean, other Russians have, but... This shows you and shows Ireland for a change and the world what we're taught of in this country. I keep telling people this. We're absolutely annihilated. We had four or five hundred boats less than 20 years ago. We're going to be down to a hundred or 120 boats if the government implement the future plans of decommissioning boats. Not to... uh, uh, bring down the fleet for everybody, just us. Yeah. So all the other countries that are coming into our waters, taking 85% of the fish, continue to do so. And yet we have to get out the way. So we're, we said that was the final straw with Russians. We weren't getting out of the way in this instance. We were going to go out there, we were going to go fishing, and if somebody told us whether it was the Irish government or the Russians said, listen, move along now, lads, we were saying, no, this is our area, we're entitled so to So what you're going to do next week is so hold, your ground, hold your ground, hold your ground, hold your fishing ground. The only one that's told us in in some shape or form not to go out there was Eamon Ryan. Mm, mm. And he's jeopardised the insurance of every single vessel outside there because now there's a warning attached to us fishing outside there. What are you so fishing, what are you fishing for at the moment? Is it prawns or what are you fishing? Prawns, props, yeah. So these prawns are so beautiful and so fantastic, right? Listen to what they do in Spain. When somebody gets married, you know, the oohs and the ahs isn't the wedding dress or the, or the groomsmen and how he's dressed. It's how many prawns you can put on the plate of your guest. Isn't that so good? <laughs> so you sending our prawns to Spain then, is it? Well, if you want to buy them, they're more than welcome. We'd love to see our Irish people. We'll, do you know what we'll do? We'll get a few of them, Neil, and we'll call to see it. We'll do it on air. <laughs> I'd love it. I'd absolutely love it. And I'd love if you were anywhere near a phone next week. I don't know what kind of signal we get from 240 kilometres off the Cork coast, but you never know. <laughs> Somebody can make contact. <laughs> Neil, at, at the moment, I'm not going out there. My job is ashore to keep the other fellas out there. Yeah, My, yeah. We need somebody on the shore because there are so many problems with our industry and so many attacks in our industry from within that we have to be on the ball to try and mitigate that damage. And that's the serious threat to our industry. Okay. As I said, okay. 15 million in compensation for a fire, 63 million for one third of our fleet, which is the better bargain. Well, the 50 million for a fire in Douglas Shopping Centre will be paid by an insurance company, you see. Yeah, yeah. And do you know who's paying the 63 million? Is even worse. It's the European Union. It's not even the Irish taxpayers. And do you know what makes it worse? The figures that they set, if they were to pay what they were saying was the, the top rate, 12,000 per GT, adding on their own figures, it'd be 96 million. All right. So doesn't that show you what they think of us? All even right. at the start, they're not even putting the proper budget there to give us the max. Okay. You know? And okay. the max, by the way, is 30% under what the fishermen paid to buy their boats. Okay. So just to explain that to the listener, give me one second, right? Imagine somebody going into a, uh, the bank, he's after bringing in 30% of his own money to buy a house. Next week, 
some fella says to him, an engineer, sorry, buddy, we're actually going knocking that house. And your man goes, geez, I just bought it. It's my house. Oh, feckin' hell. And he says, yeah, and the bad news is, we're only going to give you the 70%. You can bite it for the other 30. <sighs> That's what we're being told. Who would put up with it? Who would put, put up, up with it? it? All right, there's another interesting one. I saw a guy called Francie Gorman post overnight. It's not fishing, but it certainly is agriculture. Um, it may not be connected, but he says, how are farmers expected to cover this? He says, here's a reality check. He was buying feed for his cattle, you know, big, huge bales of the stuff. And he says, in 2021, the exact same load cost 9,360 euro on account. Today, he said, I paid 21,500 for the exact same load and he had to pay it up front. So our fisheries and our agriculture get hammered time after time, don't they? And, and yet, they're so important to our, to our economy and also but to putting food on our table. Isn't it amazing, Neil, that we don't value what's the most important thing to us? So we need shelter, we need heat, and the next thing that will keep us alive is food. Yeah. And we as a country, I'm going to tell you a fantastic story. Listen to this. One of our lads, right, married a girl from the Philippines. So, anyway, he went to Dublin Airport, and he picked up the mother, and he was driving back the mother-in-law, like, yeah. back to, down to Castle Umber. And they were driving down, and they were passing through part of the countryside, and suddenly the sun shone through the trees, and beautiful, it just lit up the place. Beautiful scenery, right? Yeah. So he says, Mom, what do you think of our country? And he says, she says, oh, yes, uh, what is wrong with your land? And he says, Sorry? What is wrong with your land? And she, he says, I, I don't understand. All you seem to be able to grow is grass. <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't get over with the green, luscious, fertile land that we have. Yeah. We weren't growing food. We don't we grow food grass. anymore. I know. And it takes an outsider to remind us of that. That's for sure. Anyway, listen, right. we'll, tr- we'll attempt to stay in touch with you and uh, see what the coming Absolutely. days bring in early next week. But to everybody yes, going to yes. see, stay but safe. Keep hitting this in mind. This is a positive step. This is something that nobody else in the world genuinely could do. We've managed to get a good relationship going with the Russians. And we want to keep it that way. We want our fishermen to be able to fish outside there. And please, God, Neil, people will get plenty of Irish fish that they won't be buying it from Jose or Pierre or Hans in 10 years' time. We know Irish left. I know, it's just saying exactly. Fair play, passionate man, Patrick Murphy, CEO of Southwest Fisheries and self uh, trawler man. Lines are open. Your calls and texts are welcome. Uh, text 0868104106. We'll pick it up after the break. The Neil Prenderville Show. With free click and collect from Tesco. Now available at your local store. Book today at tesco.ie. Neil's got a new number. Call him now on 0818104106. Passionate people, the fishermen, aren't they? And all involved who go to sea. Listen, uh, meanwhile, back here at land, it's not fish we have, it's pizza, Oak Fire Pizza. It's a free food Friday and you can have uh, pizza delivered this weekend, um, courtesy of Oak Fire Pizza. If you get in touch with them online, oakfirepizza.ie. And they're based for collection at Clonakilty, Bandon, Princess Street, Gillaby Street, and Douglas Village. So, need you to text who you are and where you are to 086-8104-106 and we'll start the shout-outs in about a half an hour's time. So, where are you and who are you and who are you with? And then when we pick a winner later on this morning, somebody will win pizza, which will be the big large ones, six of the uh, big large pizzas, the garlic bread, the potatoes, the drinks, the dips and the desserts. I think there's a cheesecake involved. Fifteen of you will be fed. All right. So text who you are and where you are to 086-8104-106 and we'll do the shout outs a little later on uh, this morning. For all other business, our lines are open. You can always pick up the phone on our brand new number 0818 
104-106. Breaking news this morning, a man in his 20s in a serious condition after he was stabbed during an incident at a house in Meadows Estate, Holly Hill. Uh, The scene remains sealed off. That's a Paul Byrne story from Virgin Media News. Yet another stabbing, yet another story to report involving knives and blades on Leaside. So that's a man in his 20s in a serious condition, stabbing in Holly Hill. The scene remains sealed off. Now, um, I know we were talking there about, um, you know, the fishermen and issues going on with the Russians at sea and firing missiles and doing all sorts of naval exercises, of course. So we're all up to date on that. And that happens next week across the week. Uh, and we'll have to see how that one unfolds. We've also heard in the past, um, I mean, there's been many stories over the years, say, of fishing trawlers and their nets being caught um, by submarines. So you don't really know what's off the core coast at any particular time, particularly under it. It could be Russians, it could be the British, it could be the French, it could be the Americans, it could be all of them. You talk about the west coast of Ireland, of course, it's a very strategic place in the first place. Always has been. So that's what's going on under the water. But if you can recall back in, um, uh, back in the, in the 1960s, 1968, and it's a story that I covered, um, for a lot of the different anniversaries down through the years. It was the Tusker Rock air crash. It was a flight that was going from Cork to Heathrow. Um, and there were 61 people on board. They all died. All 61 people died on board. It was an Aer Lingus flight, 712. I mentioned it again now because, um, while there's still some mystery involving what happened, it is thought that it could well have been a rogue missile that was fired from uh, an RAF base somewhere in Wales. Um, and of course, many, many in- inquiries and many investigations and Parts of the plane were brought up and, and things like that over the years. But it's 50 years on. Uh, and uh, Jerome McCormack, uh, still, to be honest with you, hasn't had closure following Ireland's worst air tragedy. Uh, this is 54 years on because his brother Niall was one of the uh, was one of the 61. And Jerome joins me by phone. Jerome, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? And listen uh, to me. When you, hear, when you hear of, you know, naval exercises and missile testing off the West, Co- off the West Cork coast and the Russians, it must bring that back again, you know. Was, was it a missile? What happened to my brother? Yeah, it certainly does bring it back because there is a secret, <clears throat> another secret world, you know, in the air, a military secret world, you know, going on probably all the time. And it's, it was always very, very secret, you know. <clears throat> Excuse me, there I have a yeah. frog in my throat. They're grand, but um, it did affect um, the um, the ordinary air aircraft. You yeah. see? So yeah. uh, sometimes it did happen, you know, and and uh, it could have been shrugged off as an accident, you know. But um, uh, there wasn't uh, the ability to um, to go through files at uh, that time as there is now today. Yeah. In the yeah. National and what's what still remains a mystery? I mean, there were a lot of allegations at the time that it was even a yes, cover up between the British and the Irish. Yes. That's right, Neil. There were allegations, but no proof and uh, no evidence of those allegations was given. You see. Yeah, but was it no evidence? None. Was it, in your opinion, um, a missile? Well, it, 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 I, I, how can I say, uh, how can I actually be 100% sure it was a missile? But all of the attending, you know, um, circumstances were in place. Like what? You see. Uh, new missile being tested at the time. Um, a, a, a missile uh, a, a testing ship for the um, MOD was fitted out two years previously. The, the signing of the 
the missile contract was done in uh, 1962, so it gave a five-year period for uh, propulsion rounds, control rounds, guidance rounds. This is all public knowledge, you see. General purpose complex rounds. And in 1968, uh, acceptance uh, trial-type rounds were fired uh, for pre-acceptance trials. And you had 50 rounds for acceptance trials firing program, and you had 30 shore fired and 20 ship fired. That was in 68. Okay, so they fired these, and how come they wouldn't and see this? Is, the this is not secret. This was marked secret at the time in 68, but now, in 2022, it is not secret. You know, these, this has been um, got at the National Archives. And that one of these uh, trial missiles just literally was fired into the direct path of a plane? Well, if you, if you, re if you read the file uh, dealing with um, problems of testing missiles, you, you will um, quickly understand that each missile was uh, being tested for various different aspects of the missile, yeah. and they had to they had to fire them and they had to monitor monitor them and uh, check them. You see, so uh, and then refine them for the next probably for the next uh, batch had to be changed uh, slightly. But all this is in testing, you know, and testing can go wrong, and as you know. Probably there have been several other uh, air crashes, Italy and France and uh, in America as well, and attributed to um, missile testing. And you, and your brother Niall, how old was he? Yeah, he was thirty. Yeah. Was he your, your older brother or younger brother? He was. He was the second second oldest brother. Yeah. Okay. And, and he was the last onto the plane in '68 in the in the. Uh, and where was he going? Cork. He was going to London and taking a uh, trip on then to um, to Switzerland for a job interview. So he had been travelling an awful lot uh, before that, of course. What he, so what did he do? What did he do? Did he he travel? was a textile consultant. Right. So he had to, you know, travel the world, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with, with all that kind of thing. He was with a, an American firm. So he, you know, flying internationally was fairly normal to him when an awful lot of people... Piece of cake, I suppose, it was just normal to him, you know. Yeah. It was a lot easier that time, you know. Do you recall the day um, that he went off to I the airport? I certainly do. I do indeed, yeah. We slept in the same room together, actually, and um, I was concerned when I heard the news. Um, I think it might have been David Timlin or somebody like that on the Irish uh, radio news. And um, I just thought, well, I'll, I'll ring the airport because I don't think he made that plane because uh, he was rather late leaving. Yeah. But uh, the lady on the phone told me, yes, he had been, he'd been a passenger. And at this oh, stage, at this stage, was it clear that that the plane had been hit, that it had come not down? Not fully, not fully. But we were very, very, very concerned. Very concerned. Just my mother and myself sitting at the table, you know, after our Sunday lunch, uh, usual Sunday news. Everything was normal, you see. But this was like a bolt from the blue. Totally, totally. Yeah. Was it sometime later then when you got a call to hear the it bad was, news? Uh, uh, we we heard then uh, that um, the plane. Uh, last message was uh, spinning rapidly, you see, so we heard that. And, uh, I think it was 12,000 feet descending, we, spinning we rapidly. We really gave up uh, any hope of any, any um, um, save, anyone being saved yeah. at that stage. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was all totally secret. The, the, um, the maneuvers were totally, totally secret, you know. Absolutely, you couldn't, you know. You couldn't e even think about um, talking about uh, secret MOD stuff at that time. And tell us a little bit about, that was 1968, of course, as yeah. I say. But yeah. tell us a little bit about 
um, the the rescue operation because I know and and I hate I hate mentioning this but there was only yeah. fourteen bodies recovered from the yeah. crash site was yeah. was your brother well, amongst I, them? I have no can to carry. I'm I'm only just worried about that the truth will be told about my my own brother and that the truth will be told about the other sixty people on board. You know, and I feel very very sorry, and uh, I am. Uh, just concerned, rather concerned, because of the circumstantial evidence shows that the British controlled the airspace. They controlled the surface of the water. This is now in, uh, near Tusker Rock. At the time, they controlled the water. They controlled under the water. They controlled at shore, yeah. where they over, took over an office in Rosslair and used uh, communications from there to their headquarters. And uh, the Irish really and had two small boats. Uh, one of them was coming down by, uh, from Killybegs, coming down by Dundalk to, to come to the rescue area. Yeah. And it arrived there 47 and a half hours later when everything was um, nothing to see then at that stage. There was nothing to be seen. And uh, they 47 were delayed. 47 hours is over two days yeah, and nights. 47 and a half hours, yeah. That's documented. And they um, were sent in to rescue a UK boat in Dundalk, which when they got to it, didn't need any assistance. So they were 47 and a half hours after the event, they arrived at um, Tusker Rock area to take over the so-called, to take over the, the search and rescue. But they didn't have the equipment to take over the search and rescue. And, and and as I say, your brother's body wasn't amongst them, sure he wasn't? No, it was yeah. not found. Yeah. No, not, 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 not found uh, in that sense, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, uh, <clears throat> not in the first day, no, it wasn't. It was never found, actually. Yeah, so yeah. Never uh, but, but, but parts of the wreckage were recovered, weren't they? Yes, indeed. And yeah. they're still, you know, the, the wreckage was uh, on display. I don't think, I think it was kept very, very quiet. Uh, I don't think people were allowed into it, maybe. Uh, not brought to Baldonnel, I think, wasn't it? Uh, in case when they were in, in Baldonnel, yes. And uh, it was disposed of quickly, rather quickly. And, uh, you know, um, horridly to get rid of it, I think. Really? So Yes, all that happened, yeah. It's all so long ago now. <laughs> no, you know, so long ago, and I, I feel. Um, well, is it any it, wonder that people talk of collusion or allegations of a cover-up? Well, you see, I, I, I only became um, aware that when the Russians were coming here, that they were testing missiles, and yeah, uh, yeah. that that's it's it's uh, it's probably slightly relevant to the 1968. Um, well, that's why I was reminded of it. Actually, we were chatting yeah, about it last yeah, week yeah. when we talk about missiles flying around in the sky. So, do you remember, wasn't there talk about the 68 flight was hit by a missile? Like, I know that modern forensics now would, would deal with it very differently, and there were probably very basic investigation yeah. techniques in the 60s. But was there, not, yeah. was there not kind of a big gaping hole in it? Uh, in which? In, in the wreckage, in, in, the part of the wreckage in, that came up? No, uh, there were holes all right seen, yes. Uh, there were holes seen in the tail. Uh, the photographs were very, very poor, very, very, very poor, uh, very dark and almost black, you know. So I think that um, that was not very helpful to people who wanted to investigate it. So to this day, because um, they were hit by something, something hit them. Yeah. Nobody something has come out and said, we know what happened. This yeah. is what happened. We're well, responsible. Neil, I flew on that very same plane, the same film. It was my first flight from London to Cork in 1968, three weeks before that thing happened, you know? And I honestly know, as a layman, I cannot say that I found 
absolutely anything wrong with that plane. You know, now I'm putting myself out in front there now because uh, as a layman wouldn't know really much about planes, but uh, I thought it was perfect. It was a perfect flight, absolutely. Why, were some suggesting that it was um, mechanical error? There, there, was mechanical of, there were all kinds of uh, things said, you know, that uh, board strike and uh, things about the corrosion was, was mentioned, but no, no, no evidence of corrosion. I actually was my first flight and I was amazed at the whole thing. And um, I went from Brampton Road, the Aer Lingus uh, office in London, and there was a, a coach bringing you out to the airport. You just walked into the airport was nothing like that, uh, no security. No, like different that. Days, and he yeah. just, just yeah. walked into them, went onto the plane, he sat down on the plane, and I know. But before I went onto the plane, I walked all around it. That's unusual, you see. And I looked at everything on the plane, and I was wondering, you know, all the different parts and, the, you know, the whole thing. It was very interesting to me. And then, of course, yeah. uh, just as I turned around at the nose of the plane to come around to the uh, gangway, I noticed the name of the plane, the same field, and it was spelled in the old Irish language, P-H-F-E-I-D-L-I-M. So uh, I got on the plane. It was a perfect plane. It was, you know, it was, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't personally point to anything, anything at all wrong with that plane. Yeah, you'll mark his, you'll mark his anniversary this March again, won't you? The twenty fourth. Well, of course, yes, yeah. yeah but yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't be one for. You know, uh, public marking for uh, that much, you know. No, but privately, uh, of course. Because I want to know the truth first. Yeah, yeah. And then I'll mark it. And I, I, I remember being at a meeting of the relatives, you know, years ago in the Metropole Hotel. And um, somebody said, oh, now we can get uh, the Bishop of um, Wexford. He's agreed to go out to Tuscarock and say a mass in Tuscarock, and that'll be our or anniversary for the anniversary. Mm-hmm. So I just talked about it for a minute and I just said, I was some kind of thing on the committee and I said, well, I would love that and I think it was a great idea, but I'd, I'd love to hold it until we know the truth. And I was surprised. I got great support from the, from the large meeting. So is this, is this a closed book then? Well, it isn't closed. It can't be closed because uh, there's no evidence to show what happened it. <sighs> you see. Uh, I mean, they may say maintenance, they may say but, corrosion, they may say bird strike, but they're not showing the evidence to prove... But you know how, I mean, I'm, I'm running rapidly out of time, but you know how we, yeah. we have every, I don't know, is it every 40 years or 50 years we yeah. have documentation released by the state? Um, yeah. Would that be, would, the, would there be stuff released on it at any time or would it be regarded as secret and never released? Because the truth well, is I somewhere. Think, I think, Neil, that you've hit the nail on the head there. I think that it will come out. This document that I have uh, talking about what, go, what, we to do, what we are to do in the UK if a missile goes wrong, that was written in 1964. And, I, and that was released in 1992. Yeah. So there's a long period of time of waiting, you see, because they're hoping that maybe everyone will be dead and gone by the I time know. that's yeah. mentioned in the, in the files. You I see. Know. They're hoping that. And there won't be any repercussions, you see. You know? But okay. I think, uh, you know, you go back to, to uh, Derry, the, 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 the massacre in Derry, uh, the files, the, the secret files there were found um, in queue um, and that led them to finding out the truth. Yes, you know? and of course, we'll see finding out the truth. 50th anniversary of Bloody so Sunday. I think that <laughs> there's somebody somewhere is, is, is putting files, you know, to be made available or to be slipped in somewhere or whatever. I can't tell you that. 
but I think we should watch. We should keep an eye out. Okay. Thanks so much for taking the call, Thank Jerome. You. Thanks for taking Thank the time. Thank you for your interest. Absolutely. Thank Jerome you. McCormick, brother of uh, the late Niall McCormick, one of the passengers on board. The St. Phelan. Back after 10, text 0868104106. The Neil Prenderville Show. With Tesco Home Delivery. Extra delivery slots now open across Cork. Book today at tesco.ie. 104 to 106. Red FM. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Now it's a Free Food Friday, courtesy of ourselves and Oak Fire Pizza. Text who you are and where you are to 0868104106. We'll feed 15 of you. So if you're working from home or you're working in the office or working at the plant or the factory, whatever the case may be, we want to know. Text 0868104106. Here's the first bunch of shout-outs for you. Free Food Friday pizza, please, for everybody at Irish Oxygen for the last Friday in January. Says Olga and Stacy. There's 17 others, so 19 of them in total. Gan and all the girls in Passage West Post Office, good morning to you and everybody at the Puffin Ward in CUH. Dean's Civils on the Glasheen Road. Uh, John Murphy's starving, apparently. Sorry, um, I also see people coming in regularly from AP Vaughan Recycling and Tower. I a leash working for Dairy Gold, uh, Joe Crowley Oils, Musgraves Repair Shop, Kevin McAllen Building Services, working away. Morning to Pat and Niall and Paul, to everybody at Celtic Interiors and Douglas, all the team working super hard. Morning to Prompto Dispatch, Pizza for Boots on Half Moon Street, Unique Fit Out at Sarsfields Industrial Estate, Tig Hall Motor Parts, Brothers of Charity, Day Staff, uh, the Day Services, I should say, Bridgewater Homes in Black Rock, Blockwall Developments in Ballinclana, Airmed, Medical Supplies in Mallow, to uh, everybody, it's a lovely text actually. My name's Evelyn from Glasheen. We're having a small celebration this weekend. My daughter Hannah received a scholarship from UCC last week. We're so proud, but due to COVID, uh, it was virtual. So we're going to make up for this weekend. And pizza would be great. To all of the gang at Twilight News, Patrick Street, Paul Street and the bus station, always listening. Uh, O'Donovan's Life Pharmacy in Balafihan. Uh, Amy by Amy Wills in Black Rock. Guys and Dolls on the South Main Street. Top of the Hill Bar. Morning to everybody there. And also uh, Carry Out in Gronabraher. Edwin's the boss man up there. To all of the staff looking after the elderly at Block 3 St Mary's Health Campus. Custom Wear in Donnybrook Hill. WCC Roastery. Uh, in Inna Shannon, to the staff at Scandals Pharmacy in Ballinine, GPT in Little Island, and finally Power Boat Cork in Moneygorny Yard, getting the boats ready for the season. And they share it next door with their neighbours at Cork Cleaning Solutions. So good morning to all of you guys. We'll do some more shout outs in about a half an hour's time. So text who you are and where you are to 086 104 106. More shout outs on the way and a big feed of pizza. With all the sides, incidentally, garlic breads, potatoes, drinks, dips and desserts, courtesy of ourselves and Oak Fire Pizza. Now, lines are open. Let's go back to our calls. One eight, sorry, I did it again. 0818-104-106. Greg, good morning. Hey, good morning, Neil. Just ahead, just ahead of you, actually. I see other texts coming in with regards to um, uh, the St. Phelan. Uh, Kim Cunningham actually texted me. My uncle and my aunt were on the plane my dad, Michael Cunningham, went to Ross Lair to see what was going on with the recovery, like many family members of the victims. She says, I remember him talking about small wings being brought in on fishing boats that were a funny orange and red colour, um, which we'd now call fluorescent. So those wings and those kind of parts on the plane would have nothing to do with the St. Phelan, more to do with a missile or a drone, I would have thought. But anyway, Greg, good morning. What have you got for me? Well, a small background, um, my uncle had property down in Monkstown 
and Kevin, his son, joined the Royal Navy. I found the love of um, the water, fronting the water. Now, my uncle died February 1977, and I was over for the funeral in 23 Hampton Road, Teddington, and um, because my father couldn't go, he was too ill. And uh, so uh, the conversation with Kevin was he was on a British sub, and I was well aware that he was in the Navy for years and on the sub. And um, uh, so the conversation went, uh, he asked me, um, did I know anybody on the uh, Cork flight? I said, I knew three. The St. Phelan, 1968. Yeah, yeah he yeah, was on right. the British sub at the time. Yeah, yeah exactly. You knew three. And, uh, Who are they? Uh, there were um, uh, Ian Mulcahy, Noel Mulcahy. He was a teacher in the Christian College. There was Rory Delaney. He was a student a couple of years ahead of me. And I walked in Ford, and a work colleague was uh, Gus O'Brien, okay. arts manager. Oh, lost their lives. <coughs> yeah. So, <coughs> excuse me. What did your first cousin, the subman, tell you? Right. No, exactly. Uh, he said to me, um, so just myself and myself, uh, I'm waiting for the removal uh, inside in the front room. And he asked me the question, did I know anybody on the uh, flight? That's what I named to you. No, he said... Uh, we were there uh, when there was a live exercise going on from the well side that very day, and we were there. And with the accident, or whatever, uh, we were told, irrespective of uh, births, weddings, deaths, we were there for six weeks non-stop. Right? So in the south. So therefore, uh, in other words, to me, uh, it sounds a guilty thing that's only an opinion however and uh, so he mentioned that that's really about it that's yeah. all he said yeah. in now, the sense that they were there because there were exercises going on at the time oh, oh there were definitely exercises going on that day and they were there that day right and you know part of the routine whatever and so the next thing anyway um the situation was uh, that, that he kind of uh, the, the word among the lads he just shrugged the shoulders was it, it, it must have been an accident that, that was an accident followed by a cover up though well no there's no suggestion of a cover up you follow that's the opinion he said no not him he's not saying that I'm saying oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, look uh, Neil uh, let's be honest about it it was an accident, and uh, it, it, which was a serious accident. I said the commercial airlines for taking themselves. They can't afford to have something like this. Yeah, sixty-eight people lost their lives. Many of them court yeah, people. I, that's it. Correct. Now he did mention uh, another thing uh, to me in the same conversation. Uh, he said we were patrolling the west coast of Ireland for years. Mm. Right, mm. and he, then he said, "Do you remember there was a mini sub? There were two men trapped off the southwest coast years ago. I haven't got the details on that, but I remember the story at the time. And the official line was they were laying a telephone cable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the cable they were laying was uh, monitoring every ship. He described every ship as a heartbeat, is identifiable." And once it came within five, six miles of the Irish coast, that was transmitted to uh, Falmouth, which went to the state straight away. Yeah. There were the exact words. Yeah, okay, okay. Okay, okay. So, so, so that's the bottom line. All right. Now, uh, 
I, listening to the fishermen there um, the, the, on their your lad. Now, if they're, I'd say the activity uh, there to the, outside of the naval exercise, you can take it almost certainly. There's British subs, American subs, or whatever. I don't know if they're here, but they'll certainly be monitoring the area. And if the fishermen are using lines that actually going fishing. I'd say beware of your net. So there'd be a lot more sub-activity off the West oh, Coast, it you're saying? Yeah, it, yeah. It, look, if it was in the 60s, 50 years later, what, what's it like what's now? What's it like now? Fair play. After Thanks, Martin Greg. Ryan, Thanks, Greg. Time. Thank you so much for taking the call. Okay, much obliged. We really don't know what's going on under the water. What we do know, actually, and very interesting, is there's an awful lot of cables off the west coast of Ireland going all the way to America. Those cables actually connect Europe with America and so on and so forth and they go all around the world. Um, and uh, they split from time to time and there's a company goes out then to repair them obviously at different parts of the uh, on different parts of the uh, of the oceans and the seas of the world. Uh, but if say for instance um, you know there was some kind of an explosion at sea and one of the cables got snapped or damaged, you probably find that um, your internet won't work. You'll have no go Google. You possibly would have no uh, broadband. Um, you know, there'd be all sorts of economic consequences for that with regards to communication. That's what those cables do. I think there's, there's something like 30 major cables, major cables uh, running off the Irish West Coast all the way to America and Canada. It's probably even higher than that, but I believe in and around 30 of the more major ones on the seabed. Anyway, lines open. You can text 0868104106 and we'll pick up on many calls, texts, and emails. A lot of it from yesterday's conversations after the break. The Neil Prenderville Show. With free click and collect from Tesco. Now available at your local store. Book today at tesco.ie. Text The Neil Prenderville Show now. 0868104106. Red FM. If I were to stop now and just read texts, I'd be here until midday with regards to um, stories and conversations involving uh, our children on the autistic with an autistic spectrum disorder. Here's just a selection of them and then back to our phone calls again. It's not just children on the spectrum that are not getting services. My son has a vision impairment and needs OT, speech therapy, physical therapy, psychological therapy. I sat in front of his new team uh, and cried and I was told make a complaint. Uh, have no doubt, Neil, the state wastes taxpayers' money all of the time in every department. Believe me, it's disgraceful. If you had to wait on the public service for services like psychology, your child would be finished school and conditions would be worse. I was waiting too long. Eventually had to go private and pay for all of the assessment the kids needed in the end. They tell you there is no money, but the General Secretary of the Department of Health is able to get an €81,000 pay rise, says Martin. Never said a truer word. Since the HSE was created, the health service has gotten worse and worse. No matter what amount of money is allocated to the HSE, it's being so badly spent, the services never improve. The amount of management in the organisation is a joke, and many of the managers just aren't fit for the job they hold. Only when the HSE is scrapped and replaced with a fit-for-purpose system will we see any glimmer of improvements. It's heartbreaking listening to your show the last few days and the treatment of our children, says Pat. Um, one or two more. Um, we have a clueless government. 289 million on new walking routes and cycle lanes. I'm a big walker and we have ample walking routes throughout the country. 289 million would solve many support issues for the families that need urgent assistance for their children. It's all wrong. The allocation of monies is the problem. We have clueless governments, in particular the Greens, says Mike. Um, We have to be parents to our children and we wholeheartedly take on that responsibility to do so. 
But we also have to be speech and language therapists to our children, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, dietitians, sociologists, play therapists and advocates. This is state abuse, the same as it was in the past, except now this abuse is happening outside institutions. And that's, uh, that's from parents of a child with uh, autism. It was always amazing. It always amazing when our government can borrow a billion a year for foreign aid, but yet our own are left begging for help. Somebody else picks up on that point, says millions every year is being sent over to Europe for children's allowance to people that don't live here. And yet they can't help their own citizens in their own country. You know, talking about waste, actually, um, I was mentioning yesterday the outdoor gyms that they're building along the walks. Um, there's one of them already down Rochestown on the walk from Rochestown to Passage, and they're going to put these gyms in other outdoor walking areas as well. Um, a couple of people had an in- interesting th- thought on that. Any outdoor gym that I've seen in Cork, they're absolute rubbish and a total waste of money. Anyone who regularly trains would never find these beneficial. They look great, but in fact, they're quite useless. Somebody else picks up on that. Those pieces of gym equipment are a waste of money. Do you ever see anyone using them besides kids who use them as a playground? Uh, yeah, I mean, structurally, they're shocking looking things. I guess they'd be the best you could expect is them that they're probably OK if you want to just have a bit of a stretch. But more than that, no. Somebody's saying they're quite useless and just a complete waste of money. Um, there are a lot of ways that money is wasted in this country. And I'll drill back into that again between now and midday today. I want to chat with uh, Christine. But first up, Amy, good morning. Hi, Neil. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Your little boy, Freddie. Was he three now? Is he three years old? He's, he's three years old okay. now, yeah. Okay, because the lads were telling me that you have to fight for everything, including nappies. Absolutely everything. It took two months before I eventually got the nappies for Freddie. Any other nappy he had was cutting into his sides and causing blisters. Okay. He is um, he's nonverbal uh, on the autistic spectrum. Uh, is it moderate yeah. to severe? Moderate to severe. Yeah, and as an extreme sleeping disorder as well, in the sense that you only sleep maybe if you're lucky an hour a night, is it? Yeah, well, it was before he was put on sleep medication. But now with the sleep medication, he gets a couple of hours a night, which is a help to him and to us. So he's gone from an hour to a couple of hours? Yeah. Does that mean you only sleep a couple of hours then? Well, myself and my husband rotate, so some nights my husband does it, then I, I do it. Okay, okay. Um, and, and tell me a little bit about his condition and how it affects him. He doesn't understand anything, Neil. Um, he does a small few gestures, like if he's in pain, he brings us to the medicine press, or if he wants something to eat, he brings us to, to the food. Um, he's... A very high flight risk. He can't walk very far. He, I'm actually losing a tooth because of his tantrum. Oh. He headbutted me into the mouth. Headbutted you the misfortune. She doesn't know. He, he like, I think it's more frustration because he can't tell us what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, like at the moment, he's refusing to drink the past six months, and oh. now he's starting to refuse to eat. Because he has tantalitis all the time, so his throat is always sore. He's always on an antibiotic. He's always on painkillers. Oh, dear me. Just That's so, so sad. Eat. Yeah. I mean, dehydration is a worry then, isn't it? I mean, you know, it he's is. got to drink he has water. He twice 
And in fairness to the staff out in CUH and the doctor, he's under out in CUH. They are fabulous. Um, all I have to do is ring them and they'd have a drip ready to go and a bed ready for him. And can, can anyone work out why he stopped drinking? Is it because his throat is sore all he, the time? He got, um, he had a sore throat and normally he'd pulls at his throat when it's sore. But this time he didn't and he kept drinking. And because he was drinking into his sore throat, he's now afraid to drink. It could it be the cup or, or the beaker or the what you know? Because some some kids can be very particular about what they're drinking out of. He used to drink out of a baby bottle. Now I've bought every type of cup and beaker and glass and plastic glasses, and nothing makes makes him want to drink. As parents, it must be very drink, upset. He's, get, he's he's getting sick even at the sight of drink. What about food? Food, he is. He has a very limited diet. Um, like his food a day is spuds and pureed fruit because he can't swallow anything else. Mashed potato, is it? Mashed potatoes and gravy. At least he's getting fruit. good sustenance out of that anyway. Well, he actually had stopped eating for a couple of days, days this week because his throat was so sore. And he kept wanting more painkillers and more painkillers. I know. You get sick and it as makes well, it more then. like it makes it more difficult when there's not the services there to help him. Yeah. So how are you doing in that department then? Um, we actually moved house during Christmas. Um, it was only two minutes down the road. We didn't think it would affect us with the service provider we're with, but unfortunately, it did. Uh, we were three hundred meters outside their area. So I had to fight for that. Um, and Otherwise you'd have moved from Cope to Brothers of Charity. You wanted to stay in Cope because they were, yeah. yeah, yeah. To stay where he's familiar with because if Freddie goes into a new situation, his anxiety gets so bad, he gets sick. Or he starts scratching himself and pulling the skin off his nails. Whereas he knows the girls up in Cope. Yeah, I know. And did you manage to stay there? I managed to stay there. Yeah. But it was a fight. Yeah. Everything is a fight though, isn't it? Like you open one door and five more clothes. I know. I know. They make it so difficult for parents with any child with special needs. And I'm hearing getting a lot of texts and emails from people saying that there are positions available but they don't fill them or they can't fill them or there's they can't. no they like there's two at the moment. Freddie's supposed to be going for a feeds assessment just to see why he's not swallowing and why he's not eating why he's not drinking. And they can't do a full assessment because they don't have any OT or psychologist available. Now, they have the positions advertised. They just can't get the people to fill them. And you know the fight after fight after fight. Are they special nappies that you had to fight for? Yeah. Are they they're, the nappies. He's, they're the nappies he's entitled for from three. And when I asked the public health nurse, she said, no, it's gone up to four. And I took... I was kind of getting to the end of my tether with it. Um, and I said, look, I'll go social with this. I'll go social media. I'll go to the radio stations about it because he is entitled. They tried to tell me he was only entitled from four. Um, and you and got eventually them? Then I got them. Because he doesn't understand when he needs to go to the bathroom. But tell he, me this. I, I, so you got them, but again, another fight. But those are you saying the nappies originally were for three-year-olds and upwards and they changed it to four-year-olds and upwards? They were trying to say they changed it to four. 
they didn't because I got onto citizens information just to know my details properly and why they said no the policy is still the same it's three why even why would you even have to check something like that why, why they made why anything everything is so made small, so difficult it's it's unbelievable every little thing you have to do for kids like Freddie and any child with any special needs it's all a fight there's a text earlier on this morning saying this is abuse, the same kind of abuse that went on within our institutions back in the day is now happening, but now it's happening to parents and their children in their own homes. You would class it as abuse because they're being neglected by the HSE. They're not providing them. Like, early intervention is the key for anyone with a diagnosis like Freddie. Will he move from COPE then into, hopefully, uh, an ASD unit attached to a primary school? Is that your hope? That's my hope, but it is, it's very hard, Neil, because I had a list of schools in front of me, all with ASD units, and they all said they couldn't take Freddie because he is too severe. I've one school that has put him on a list. And if that doesn't happen then, because you're clearly his full-time carer. Yeah. That like, will be your life journey. Had to, change, had to change jobs to suit Freddie's needs, because my husband used to do nights, and he couldn't continue with the nights. Mm. Because I was after being up all night with Freddie, and I'd have to stay up all day. I know, and no one, no one can physically do that. I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, thanks for sharing your story, Amy. Thank you so much. It's just one of many. Like I have they, to say. they just need to, they just need to change everything because at the moment, as it stands, it's not working. Let me get some more calls like, and emails and texts on, if you will. It's clearly broken. I mean, that's very obvious. That's evident. It, it is, and it's it's a fright that you have to fight so much for every, every small little thing. thing. It's, yeah. it, it's like walking on a, mine, a minefield. You get one victory, and you're kind of like, yes, and then another slap would happen yeah. the same day. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Amy. Uh, look after yourself. Appreciate you taking the call. Well, we talked about um, earlier, actually yesterday, I was talking about the different amounts of money. One of the areas that I drilled into, of course, was um, because of lack of school places for special needs pupils, um, they then have to try and get special needs pupils, anybody on the autistic spectrum and things like that, uh, to um, a different location. And that then costs the state because taxis have to be provided. Remember I was mentioning that and we had a statistic originally for South Dublin where it was costing €77,000 a day to provide taxis for kids to and from school. That worked out there as uh, £13.3 a year just for South Dublin. So I was curious then as to what the national figure would be, say the cost of transporting special needs pupils to schools and taxis and minibuses. And I managed to get some of those stats uh, yesterday afternoon when I got off the air and I got it on a search and I believe it again, probably it's either um, uh, an Irish Independent article, it could be a journal.ie one, but I think it's the Independent. Um, And they broke down the cost and it's very interesting because the cost of, and and of course, I'm not complaining or or criticising the fact that special needs pupils need to get to schools in taxis and minibuses. I'm just talking about the amount of money that could be used if they didn't have to have taxis and minibuses and they were able to build more and more locations, more and more um, units closer to where all of the kids live. So anyway, with that in mind, the cost of transporting special needs pupils in 2019 was 100 million euro. Um, That was 2019. The Minister for Education said that the uh, school transport scheme um, in 2020 
would cost 200 million. So see that incredible jump year on year from 100 million taxis and minibuses in 2019 to 200 million in 2020. Of course, I don't know whether that actually happened or not because of COVID and maybe a lot of people not going to and from schools. But that's what they were anticipating, 200 million for 2020, which means the 2021 must have been higher again. So if you call it 200 million to 250 million, that's a quarter of a billion, potentially a quarter of a billion uh, on taxis and minibuses. Um, and that's just a sticking plaster, a bandage, really. Nothing more than that. It achieves nothing except getting people to and from a place. The quarter of a million, let's say if it was that high, is not being spent on services. It's not being spent on helping parents. It's not being spent on building more units and places where our autistic community can thrive and improve. It just isn't. Uh, lines open, text 0868 uh, Let's stay with the phone lines. Uh, Caroline standing by. Christine, good morning. Good morning, Neil. <clears throat> so, let me let me hear your story, if you don't mind. Thank you for sharing. Well, yeah, I, I was on to you before, actually, um, about my son and the lack of um, residential places, you know. Okay, but you... My, my, my son is now an adult. Yeah, yeah. And, is, and um, is, he, is he on the autistic spectrum? He is. Okay. He has a complex uh, diagnosis, but his main one would be autism. So you've, you've been hearing stories over the past couple of days from mm-hmm. younger mothers who are going through it uh, while you've been doing it for 35 years. Absolutely, absolutely. And would you find and those I, stories from those mothers? And it was, there were some dads actually as well. Shane was on yesterday. Um, do you find right. them heartbreaking? Absolutely, absolutely heartbreaking because, you know, I've been there. I've been there. I've been fighting now for 35 years for my own son and um, I know I know what they're going through you know mm. um, I suppose um, what, 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 what really what I wanted to say was that you know children with autism really you know if there's any break in their service at all it can have a terribly detrimental effect on them you know yeah. because um, they need they need this continuity of service you know they need to have this um, I suppose routine really I suppose to break it down um, on a daily basis, and if they don't have that, you, you'd be surprised the way they can regress. You know. Yeah, and, and they're not um, getting those services. And if they try and get them, whether it's OT, any kind of therapy, physical, psychological, whatever, they have to pay for it themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we, my son, was, as I told you already, he's thirty-five, and when he was diagnosed first day. Autism. The word autism wasn't even on the on the on the radar. Yeah. So back then, uh, was he was he prescribed medication instead? Was it? He was. He was. And was and that like sedation I, medication? Well, you see, when back in the day, that time, any time he went, to, he went to a special school. Now, in the special school that he went to, there would have been an awful lot of um, different disabilities, if you like. Yeah. You know, yeah. children with different disabilities. Some children really were were quite um, maybe not disabled, but maybe a bit slow learning, you know. Yeah, okay. And they weren't; they wouldn't have had a diagnosis now of autism or Down syndrome or anything like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you see, back in the day, then when my son started to attend the school, which I won't name, of course, but um, he he got on okay for a while, but he would have been on the lower, you know, on the, on the very end of the, of the, of the rung of the ladder, really, in that school, you know. But at the time, there was no choice. There was no choice. There was very little choice. Yeah. Was it there mainstream school? 
It wasn't. It was a special school. Okay. It was okay. a special school, yeah. but there was only there were there were only a couple at, at the time, you know, in yeah. in the county, and um, I suppose you know his experience there really was that he really I in my my mind he didn't really learn a lot yeah. to be honest. Yeah. And um and you see we we didn't have his diagnosis of autism at the time. Thirty five years so, ago, yeah. Yeah, so eventually, by, by the time he finished that school, you know, I, I remember one time in in his last year in that school, I got a call to say to come down because Paul was uh, displaying signs, signs of psychosis. So I was, as you can imagine, distressed at, at getting this call So from a teacher. So um, I went down and took him and had him, took him to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist told me that there was no sign of psychosis. Now, he had been on medication because any time there was any issue in the school, you'd be sent off to the psychiatrist. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And they were put on this medication. Now, I, I'm listening to that case in Kerry last week, really brought this to mind to me, because I think back in the day, that was the way to go. You put them on medication to kind of sedate them slightly, you know, to calm them down and carry on then, you know, and this was the way it was. Year in, year out. And uh, when when he, when your son Paul turned 18, uh, Mm -hmm. what was his life then from 18 to, how old is he now? He's 35 now. And from 18 to 35, how has his life been? His life has been okay. He he went to a a training centre then when he was 18, when he finished school for three years. And then he went into um, a, uh, the Brothers of Charity service. and um, But like that... Now, and what does that involve, year in, year out? In what sense? Need, well, I mean, um, has he, does he have a skill? Does he have a job? Is he capable no. of independent living? No, he's not. He's not. He has no skills. And is he, he, is no he within, is he within this, that service you refer to full-time? He's not in that service, no. I, I found eventually, eventually, when he was around um, 2021, I heard of this autism-specific service. And I made inquiries, and I got him in there by the skin of my teeth, because he he was, that was back in, that was 12 years ago. And does he live there? No, he doesn't. And you see, that's, that, that's the problem. So he, he lives with you and attends every day? He lives with us and he attends every day. And what you were saying there about the transport is a huge issue. You know, it's a huge issue. He was going, he was in a bus for over an hour every day back and forth. And But now he's been moved since September, since they opened up again. You know, he's moved a bit closer to home, which is, mm. which is better for him. He's not in the bus. I know, long, you I know. know. I know. It's very sad, isn't it, that you're telling a story that started 35 years ago with the yeah. system that over the years has got worse and worse, chronically Absolutely. worse. Absolutely. And the money that they say they're putting into it, I'd like to know what they do with it. Because, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The, the services are, are, are actually worse than what they were. Thanks so much for taking the call, Christine. Uh, many, many stories been shared over the past few days. Caroline, good morning. Morning, Neil. How are you? Thank you for holding. Um, now, you wanted to make a few points in regards to the topic over the past few days, regarding your, and including and up to your daughter, is it? Yes. Um, well, like that lady beforehand, I'd probably be in the system as, as long as her almost. She's 35, you're 31 years in the system. Your daughter's 31. 31. Yes, she's 31. And um, listening to those people for the last few days, 
sorry, I'm a bit nervous. You're um, grand, just chat away. People for the last few days, um, I just feel so sorry for them because it's not going to get any better because I'm at the other side of it and it hasn't gotten any better. So over the years and all those years, all they do is just wear you down with no's yes. or difficulties or closed doors. As I said in my text, it's like, you know, what well, my thing is like with management, there is absolutely no correspondence. Amy's in a day service. Now, I couldn't fault the day service and the staff on the ground because they are very good at what they do. My problem is with management. You have no correspondence with them. They don't answer emails. They don't answer texts. They don't answer phone calls. And it's like, for me, the feeling is, if, she, if I don't answer, she'll go away and stop bothering us because I'm asking and asking. And it's respite is our thing that we're looking for. And we had it up until two years ago before COVID. And it was taken from her very unfairly because HICWA makes all these kind of decisions. You know, people can't share a house that's a residential house and people should, with disabilities, should have individual assessments and individual way of living. And the respite would be for how long at a time? She would get it for a weekend. Yeah. She'd go on a Friday and she'd She loved it. It was a way of life that Amy had for 17 years. Yeah. And it was taken from us. And then I, like I said to them at the time, how do you think if we had something for 17 years that we don't need it anymore? Like she hasn't improved. You know, she has become more of a handful because she's gotten older. She developed epilepsy in the last three years. So her needs have gotten greater. And this was taken. And then COVID happened, which I can understand. But for the last, we'd say, nine months, I've been asking and asking about the respite. And they told me they're waiting on HICWA to inspect the house that was closed just due to COVID now. There was nothing else going on in the house. That still isn't sanctioned or ready to go yet. And, and I what was wrong with the house? Absolutely nothing, Neil. It was just closed. <laughs> but HICWA had to come in and do all these inspections. And I just find anything that the HSE do takes years. If it was a private company, it probably would have been opened back in September. If it was a private First, company, it would have been inspected over a, a weekend. It would have been inspected over a weekend, yes. And this is what happens all the time. With anything to do with the HSE, I have rang the Northside Disability Services. They put me back onto someone else. I would complain to them about the lack of correspondence. They will investigate it. And I hear no more. But if the I pace of life, if the pace of life is thundering ahead at a very fast pace, right? And, and seemingly the world economy booming ahead and everybody is busier now than they ever were before. Why do we have a health system or indeed any kind of government department that's going at a snail's pace all of the time? Neil, it's, unless you're in the system and all those people that have been on to you and have been listening, you don't realise how bad it is. As I've had ladies before, Amy's 31 and I said it to someone one time, you know, I said, you know, why don't people shout more, give out more? You know, I'd be kind of trying to get, and she said, they're weary from doing this because weary, yeah. nobody listens to them. Okay. And I said, as I said in my text, I do think if it was any other section of society, it, it, would, it would be classic discrimination. The disabled are kind of thrown to the side because a lot of them don't have their own voices. But where are their voices? We're doing this 24-7 with no help, with no backup, and it's like you know, carry on and do what you want. And you get weary. You do, I mean, I fight a lot and I do bang on doors, but there's times where I just get so weary that all I want is a break and nobody is willing to give it to us. And because so of that, I, then, there's very little enjoyment in life, so there's not... Like, you get burnt out, Neil. And I mean, she's a, she's a pleasure and everyone that knows us would know Amy. Like, she would go walking every day. She's a, she's a beautiful, she's an adult, I always call her child. She's very sociable. You know, whatever. She has her challenges and she can be challenging at times. When she's good, she's very good. But when she's bad... <laughs> She's very, very I know, bad. I know. And it can become wearing. And, you know, you get burnt out this time. I think, oh, Jesus, somebody would just take her for a few hours. Yes, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And I've been asking this and asking. 
and nobody is answering. And that's what I find. There are too many managers, and everybody has said that same thing. There are too many managers in all these places, and it's been pushed from pillar to post to she knock her back. I thought she rang you. So there's too many of them there. They don't even know who is actually corresponding with who. It's a disgrace. It's absolutely disgraceful. And do you know what I want to say, me before I go? Yeah. I do think all of the politicians, there's not one of them will take up the mantle for the, disabil- the disabled. Not one of them. They might come on after as long as they, they will. But I'm telling you, not one of them wants to take up that mantle. And the reason why is because a lot of the disabled don't vote. And that's my, my take on it. And I think shame on them because they're citizens as well and they deserve everything that we have as well. Well said. Thank you, Caroline. Uh, by email, the system for our kids with special needs such as autism is beyond broken. Our son was assessed in 2015. He was so severely nonverbal at the time that the team who assessed him could not score his speech and language at all. Uh, it's now seven years later and he's never been reassessed. He's in a unit with an undiagnosed intellectual delay. His learning is progressing, but it's at a very slow, slow pace. We're desperately trying to contact our key worker, email him daily, daily. They never respond to any of the emails ever. Our son needs to be reassessed so he can be placed in the right school when he leaves the primary school system. As well as this, our son is ADHD. He was under the care of a private psychiatrist who is now retired. We had no option but to go privately. Our son takes controlled medication for his ADHD and needs to be under the care of a psychiatrist. All private pediatric psychiatrists are oversubscribed in Ireland. I emailed, phoned, sent GP referrals to eight psychiatrists and not one could take our son on. Most referred us back to CAMS, uh, Child Adolescent uh, Services. They have refused our son on three separate occasions. We are left alone caring for a child who clearly needs to be monitored by a psychiatrist. They know that and still refuse to take our son. There's no progress or linked up thinking for our children. The Department of Education, the HSC, all need to work together in one umbrella for our children who are being neglected by a system in a blatantly careless way. If, if, if it feels like you have to reach a crisis point before anything will change... I hope you get to read this out from a mom who adores her son with every fibre of our being. Here's one more. My son's 14 years old, diagnosed after five years of age, after being misdiagnosed when he was three. They told me he was severely delayed and would just need speech therapy. Started school at five. Within three weeks, I was called in by the principal who told me you need to get your son assessed. He was nonverbal starting school and still not fully toilet trained. We went private. Got a diagnosis, private again, that word keeps coming up. Diagnosis of autism at five. We have fought the system for years. We're still fighting it. He's 14 now, currently on a two-year waiting list for psychological services. My point is, I've been on this journey for 14 years now. The system has been flawed for over 20 years, longer than that. And it's worse now than it was back then due to the increased numbers of diagnosis. More children are being diagnosed. It's disgraceful. Autism parents are on their own and unless you have family or friends to help out, it can be a lonely place. It is soul destroying. I have sleepless nights worrying about his life ahead and what it holds for him. He's in an autism unit in Moy for secondary school and we were haunted to even get that place. There were four allocated, 30 applied. We count our blessings. He's forgotten about though by the system. But one thing I will say is I'm grateful that my marriage is so strong and I have a wonderful husband. We soldier on and keep the fight going. My daughter is 12 and her life has been a roller coaster as she has had to constantly compensate for her brother. She's an incredible child. Thanks for reading my story. If I can give any advice to any parent out there, it is prepare yourselves for a fight and never give up. 
The Neil Prenderville Show. With Tesco and the Good Grub Initiative. Helping to feed school children in need. Tesco. Every little help. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Tweet the show at Neil Red FM. 104 to 106 Red FM. It's so important for me to try and share as many of the stories as I can. Long time listener, but my first time making contact. I had to send you a note to thank you from the bottom of my heart for highlighting the issue with autism services in this country. I'm a mother, Sarah says, I'm a mother to a, to a three-year-old boy diagnosed with autism last April. We needed to go, you know the word, private for his diagnostics because of the waiting lists publicly. I know I'm only adding to the pile of emails and texts you receive, but I just wanted to add to that pile to show the volume of children that are forgotten about. I'm fighting for early intervention school place for my son, which I know really is like winning the lottery. It's so difficult to live with when you have no control over it. But it is very reassuring to hear so many other parents' stories on your program and know that you're not on your own. All parents would do anything to progress their children. My son is nonverbal, and all I live for is to be able to have a conversation with my son one day. My son is my life, and I hope and pray every day that he gets the help he needs so he can live a good life. Thanks for giving this issue so much airtime. I really hope it makes a difference, says Sarah. Then, one final one for now. Rory sent me an email where he juxtapositions the HSE as a parent, if the HSE were a parent. I'm a father um, to an almost six-year-old beautiful girl, Olivia. She has cerebral palsy and autism, struggles with a long list of physical, emotional, intellectual parts of everyday life. However, myself and my wife, just like lots of families, find it an ongoing battle to receive even the basic necessary help for our daughter. So this got me thinking, what if the HSE was a parent? Well, that child would suffer the most, neglected through their lives for every service required for them. If the HSE were a parent and had a child with a physical disability, they would argue that, yeah, yes, my child is disabled, but not disabled enough to warrant a helping hand. Sure, my child is fine, bum shuffling around the floor. At least she can move. If the HSE were a parent, it would ignore the child's screams for therapy. If its child could not speak, they'd say, ah, at least the child can mumble. If the child hits her head off the ground repeatedly out of frustration, the HSE would say, ah, put a pillow under her and leave her be. If the HSE had a child in need of desperate surgery to help her walk, the HSE would say, ah, what's the rush? She's got nowhere to go anyway. If the HSE were a parent, a parent that needed a break because of stress, lack of sleep or lack of hope, where would that parent turn? Would they just drop the child to a relative for the night? A relative unqualified, inexperienced, unable to handle the tantrums, the physicality and the medication needs. If the HSE was a parent, the child would be lucky to get into a suitable school. The HSE were a parent, the child would suffer on so many social, emotional and physical elements of life. And if the HSE were a parent, then the HSE's mental health would suffer because of the battle going on requiring the services needed, the battle trying to raise their child or perhaps the HSE as a parent would pawn off their child's problems to another department. The HSE's children would have such a bleak future and would become the forgotten children of our society. If the HSE was a parent, a neglectful parent it would be. Kind regards, Rory McGrath. We're back after 11. New year, new number for Neil. 
Um, I just want to give you a bit of good news and something exciting on Side, and that is that Matty Kylie's chipper has opened again. I was in town doing a bit of shopping last weekend and one of the girls that I was buying from said, did you hear about Matty Kylie's? Did you hear about Matty Kylie's? I see um, Cork Bjor picking up on the story and they're saying, Matty's has opened again on Mailer Street. Now, it first opened back in 1940 and we all know of the great Matty Kylie. Many is the... Many is the bag of chips I got in there or the little plastic punnet. You get the, the chips with peas on them. Absolutely gorgeous. The old-fashioned peas. Oh, man, it was just a, such a pleasure. And the food was one thing, but the chats with Matty was another. And he retired back in, I think it was about 2007, I think. Somewhere, did I read that? February uh, 2007. The last potato pie went out the door, as Cork Bjorn saying. But anyway, it's back. And looking great on Mailer Street. Apparently, the Blue Haven have taken it over. And um, they're going to do it justice. I don't know if you could ever live up to the food of Matty Kiley, but they're going to give it a go anyway. they got new signage there, and they got the place looking great. And apparently, one of the things that's going to be their, you know, go-to item on the menu is going to be the chip butty. Apparently, they're going to do a chip butty there like no other chip butty. So, worth checking out if you're... Uh, fancy a bit of chipper then uh, Matty Kiley's on Mailer Street open again and um, I'm delighted anyway because I often passed it and said oh it's an awful shame it's an awful shame but if we had our way we'd never have let Matty retire at all but there you go so open again and good luck to the Blue Haven listen uh, lots of texts lots of emails lots of phone calls after the last couple of days undoubtedly there will come a time when I will just have to move on Um, but I could continue for days and days on end particularly the shambles um, that uh, or the HSE is in and a particular shambles that we've been looking at over the past couple of days of course is the disability sector in this country mind you it's important to note that if you're lucky enough to have private health insurance then a texter says can you please please advise parents that the VHI has a plan that offers 75% of private therapy back. I have two children on the autism spectrum. This is the only possible way I could afford private therapy. It may help another family. I funded the first three years of therapy privately without knowing about the VHI plan, but it's made such a difference to my financial situation. Yes, it is. But then again, you have to pay big money because a family plan within the VHI is thousands and thousands a year. But at least you're saying there is a plan within there for 75% a refund of private therapy but of course it shouldn't be private therapy it should be provided it's a form of abuse really um, and back in the day it was institutionalized abuse it's happening now in people's own homes the system to put it mildly is broken Catherine good morning good morning Neil. I'm on about the mental health system yes my brother is schizophrenic Um. And he's 75 years of age. 75. So I pity those people with young children because I went through all that. I'm 40 years looking after my brother. And there's no... My parents, the Lord to mercy in them, went private with him, did everything and anything. And then they died. And I was the youngest at home, so I was left with him. And, and uh, since then, 40 years. So I pity those people people, those parents with young children. And those 40 years, Catherine, has it been just you and your brother? Me and my brother. I have a brother living next door to me, but he don't get on with his brother here. Okay, well, I won't, go in, I won't go into any of that, if you don't mind. Yeah. 
uh, out of respect for that. But he's been in purpose. and out of CUMH and they leave him go. I think they leave him out once he's doped enough. Yeah. But when he gets out then the tablets that he's been on in the hospital wear off and he's back. Oh my God, he's paranoid and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's and impossible to live with, really. I mean, 24-7, people come in and say, oh, he's grand today, or this or that. But 24-7, I have it. And when he's not grand, tell us about that. What could happen, potentially? He's, he's very aggressive, and I have to lock myself in my bedroom. He just rants and raves, and everybody is against him. And, and you lock yourself away until he calms down? Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's no but life. That's, that's no life for either of you. No. No. But there's no help out there. Yeah. Do you know? There's, and especially now, the young children might have some hope because hopefully it will all change. But at the start of his life, he's seventy-five. So and that he's as bad as he was forty years ago. Yeah. What more could be done rather than medication? I, I think he needs to be somewhere for his, say, a geriatric ward or something for people like him, that he could interact or and keep him in there. Yeah, full-time care. Full-time, exactly, yeah. Okay, okay. And just with regards, your, your entire life was literally put on hold, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. I married, I had two daughters, I'm separated, but I don't blame the situation here with yeah. him. Yeah. Do you know? Did you get any help yourself then with regards to um, carer's allowance? Uh, I have the carers, yeah. 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 But I'm only getting that. I didn't realize I was entitled to that only about maybe eight years ago. And you could have been getting it for an awful lot longer. Yeah. Yeah. So you meet all of his needs every single day, 24-7. Yeah. yeah. And have you ever well, asked yeah. Have you ever asked for somebody to oh, there's, take over there's, that care? There's somebody calls once a fortnight. He's on tablets, but he takes them when he feels like it. But there's a person from the community centre calls. He's from the HSE. He's very good, really. He gives him an injection every fortnight. Yes. But he has to put up with a litany of I know, why aren't you giving me I one? Know. Why aren't I've, I think I've asked enough about your brother's situation with regards to his own condition. I need to protect his privacy out of respect to him as well because he has a condition oh, yeah. that he has no control over the misfortune. But but in, in your own in your own case, this has been your life for my life. For yes. 40 years. 40 like, years. You must have had fierce limitations on where you could go and what you could do. Also, if I go out, I can only go for a half an hour, an hour the longest, because I'd know what's happening at home or where is he or what's he doing or... But you must be worn out all the time. I am, I'm wrecked. <laughs> but I'll get there. Hopefully he will. Get where, though? What about all of the things that you should be doing with your own life? Well, I'm 68 now, so. Like going away for a weekend, you know, going oh, on I holidays. Do, I, for... I went, my last holiday was 2016 in Portugal. Oh my God, it was beautiful. 2016. Yeah. And before yeah. that, it was a long time, was it? It was. Yeah. It was longer again, I'd say. 
So, of course, they would prefer everything to say it is as it is. You to look after your brother and not to be a nuisance to them. Yeah, he've a roof over his head. That's the main thing. Yeah, he's not homeless. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So they think, oh, he's grand. He has his own house, and he's he can come and go. He's being looked after. I know, but I, and without overly dwelling on it, having to lock yourself into a room, though, there, there's a risk there. Nobody should be terrified in their that, own home. That would be when he gets aggressive. Okay, okay. Which could be once a week, I suppose. I know. And you know best then what to do when that happens. Yeah. Oh, I run. Yeah. Run for the hills if okay. I could. I know. You've, <laughs> you have enough of it. Yeah. yeah. It's not that you don't love him, it's just that it's been your whole life. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, all right. So that's just Thank- what I wanted to mention. Thanks, Catherine. I pity those parents with the children that aren't getting help. Yeah, and there are an awful lot of them that are coming across are. my desk. Okay, thanks, Catherine. Look after yourself, and I mean that sincerely. Okay. Do look thanks after yourself. Much. Cheers. Uh, Thomas Gould, Sinn Féin TD, Cork North Central. Tommy, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Uh, yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd be blown away with the amount of calls, texts and emails and stories, and all of them with one common thread going through them. They're just helpless and hopeless. The, the I think I was listening to your uh, some of your some of the uh, callers there earlier, and I think the one thing that comes across from everyone you've spoken to over the last few days is that when your child gets a diagnosis of autism or additional needs, that the parents have to fight for everything. And Neil, I'm listening to the people who you've interviewed. And they seem very strong people, very well-able people. But I, I also deal with people who aren't able to fight for their children yeah. or who aren't able to fight as well as other parents. And or were fighting but just gave up out of just sheer exhaustion. Yeah. Yes, they, they get war down, they get war down, they get disillusioned and despondent. And um, it's heartbreaking, it, it really is heartbreaking. Even, even Leo Varadkar has said that the public sector itself... All sections of it need a massive overhaul. Um, so with regards to the HSE, that just needs to be dismantled. But how do you do that? Well, can I say, we're not going through the big picture because you, you'll never get it done. In, in, but the thing in relation to disability services and particular disability services for children, the biggest problem we have is that there's shortages of staff. Like, we have great colleges. We have two brilliant colleges in Cork. We have great colleges nationally. Why aren't we turning out enough specialists, uh, a speech therapists, physiotherapists, psychologists? Like we have the capabilities to do it. Neil. And why? So, why aren't people? Is it that they are going overseas, or they're just not going into the professions? It's a combination, but also for years and years. Like you remember when we had the financial crisis in two thousand and seven and eight. Everything was cut. And I remember being on speaking with you over the years where it's health or housing. You can't cut as much as they cut back then and not have problems down the road. And I remember talking to you one time in particular, Neil, saying, like, what we did was we saved pennies, but it cost us pounds. And what we have now is we have a system for children that's not for purpose. You have children, like, I have a case there, Neil, where a, 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 a child was getting uh, speech and language and he was starting to get his own words. And then they moved him from one section to another. And now he's three and a half years without any services and he can't speak. Yes. And nobody answers phones. Nobody responds to emails. 
Um, you know, I, I actually I was at a meeting before Christmas. I was the Cocky Cherry HSC, and I got so angry at the meeting uh, with the officials. And it's not the officials. I'm not blaming the officials, though. But I just got so angry because I couldn't get answers on disability services for uh, for parents who were begging me for help. They were begging for help, and I said. Is the only way to get your child looked after in this country is go to the courts. Because that's what I said to the officials. Must I go out now and tell every parent of every child who's, who's autistic or who's not getting services is see solicitors because they're looking at their children. They're looking at their children in front of them, deteriorating, not getting better. And they're looking at their friends and their neighbour's children. And it's, it's killing people. But the HSE is spending... Hundreds of millions a year settling court cases with parents for um, um, misdiagnosis or badly botched operations and brain damage to children. Hundreds of millions. Well, you see, Neil, because they were so underfunded and so under-resourced. I'll just give you one statistic, right? There are 11 disability network groups in Cork, in Cork, right? Only one of them is fully staffed. So how are the other 10 providing the service? Done that. We have 16,000 children in Cork waiting on services. 16,000 children in Cork and Kerry alone waiting on services. Just, just in my own constituency of North Lee, we have 800 children waiting on speech and language, and we have one speech and language therapist. One. How many? How many so, waiting? 800. And 200 of those are waiting over two years. So 800 children waiting for speech and language therapy, and there's one therapist. And that's only in my constituency of North Lee. You have the same in the South Sea for Dunnick's constituency, and the same for Papuckley's in East Cork. So that's, eight, so that's 800 on the North side? 800 on the North side, and one therapist. And there's two other... Supposed to then how in the name of God can we justify paying the boss of the HSE... 460 grand. How in the name of God can we justify paying Robert Watt, for instance, a 295,000 euro wage and an 81,000 euro salary increase? For what, like? Well, I, I see, mean, oh, I also th- see, incidentally, that Robert Watt has just jetted out to Dubai for a wellness conference. Oh, mother of God. Yeah. Yes. I, but you see, Neil, I, can I say this though? I'm listening to your show for the last few days, right? You. Like, you've given people an unbelievable opportunity to tell the story. Every story is heartbreaking. Your parents there, they, they feel abandoned. They feel um, no one is fighting for them. Now, what I can say is every week in the trial, either myself or Pauline Tully or Kathleen Function or Dunica are raising this because the amount of people that we're dealing with fighting for services at the moment. That's not even to begin to talk about their entitlement to some form of um, a a blended education, primary, secondary, and the ability to go to school like any other child. There's no places for them. Neil, we know at the moment, no. I think there are 800 800 now children going to uh, ASD units or special schools and primary. And there's 250 spaces for secondary. No, like you don't have to be. You don't have to go to college to get an education to understand that that doesn't make sense. And that's where we are right now. But we're spending. I haven't got the exact figures, but it's certainly close on 200 million a year. 200 million transporting special needs pupils to schools in taxis. If that wasn't the case, we'd be spending those hundreds of. 
We use children from the top of family in Ballyvillain and Glanboy are going down to Caragaline Road to some special schools. We should have a special school in the north. Like, you have children travelling from county areas and nowhere in all the half. Like, do you know how, like, do, do they not understand how hard it is for an autistic child to be stuck in a bus or a taxi to go to a special... They should be... All schools, Neil, all schools should have ASD units. All schools, both primary and secondary. And there's just some schools in the city... And enough of them. And enough of them. But there's some of the schools in the city, Neil, not stepping up to the mark to look after all the children. And I don't care, like, I don't know, is it a bit of snobbery? I don't know, do certain schools don't want it. But every school should have an ASD unit in them because all children deserve to be treated the same. And under a Sinn Féin government... I know you're going to give me political speak that you'll make everything right. How in the name of God could you fix it? Well, the, the first thing need is you have to provide the services. You have to get the workers. You're, so you're looking at putting additional courses. On, and you'll also... We had a lot of people left our country to Australia, America, Canada. Like, we people that came to me my office who came back when the call was done two years ago to answer Aaron's call to go into the health service, Right. Thousands of them were never given jobs. People came back from all parts of the world to help out. Uh, and we have contacted me saying, uh, we came back to help. The HSE never took us up. So we need what we they need. They came back from Australia with all the medical skills skills necessary. There were probably some of them were willing to stay and they weren't employed. Well, right. yes. And I've dealt with some of them directly. And I've gone to the minister and said this. You see, I think it, Neil... Like, you're listening to people's stories, you understand it, you get it. You're, you're reporting a long time. I don't think you understand how the damage it does to children and to parents and how hard it is. They're looking at figures, they're looking at dots. Like, they're not looking at... But they can't... No, no government was ever able to fix anything. They couldn't fix housing. They can't fix health. So they're the most important things. But you see, Neil... You remember back to 2007 and 8, when you, we left uh, 300,000 people leave the country, plasters, plumbers, fitters, doctors, nurses. Like, when Germany went into recession, and I said this when I was a councillor, I said it on your show 10 years ago. When, when Germany go into recession, they build, they build schools, hospitals, road, houses, right? When we went into a recession, we went into austerity, we cut everything and we, left, we, we emigrated our young people out of the country. So then when we came out of it, we had no schools, we had no houses, we had no health service and we had no people to build up. We had, no, we, had, we, had, we had none of those things even before the bust, you know, really. But, but, but Neil, we could have built them during the bust. That's okay, so for you then, it all, it all comes back to employing and that there's not yeah. staff or that there are... But, like, there are jobs, but, I'm told, that are unfilled... 25% from Neil, 25% of them are unfilled. One in four jobs are unfilled. And in Cork Northley, it's even higher. You just look at the speech language I told you about. Three, supposed to be three there, there's only one. No, even if they had three, three isn't but, enough for But the therefore, we have a problem trying to encourage people into those career paths. But the other thing, Neil, is it's the bureaucracy trying to hire a person, uh, going out to procurement, the interview process. Like, should, like, I put it this way, Neil. They should have lists. When the person leaves, they should have a list like of the next people who would be interested in applying, who've applied already, who put in their CVs, 
people that you vetted. Already like, vetted, yeah. Go back and yeah, check. Yeah. We, know X, we know X amount of people retire every year. So we should be recruiting at the start of the year, knowing if a nurse or a doctor or a, ther- a therapist is going to retire in April or May and June. You should have the replacements ready in there and all, getting the handover, not letting them leave for six months and then trying to employ someone. Yeah. It's... Like, what we are saying is we have to put people and children first, right? Forget about the facts, forget about... Uh, like, people are saying, how do you pay for it? Look at the damage we're doing to children, the cost, both to the children and to the country afterwards trying to fix it. We, we hear what happened in Kerry. It's going to cost millions, if not tens of millions now, where if we had hired a consultant to oversee that doctor, mm. this would have never happened. Mm, okay, okay. Tommy, thanks as always. Appreciate you taking the call. Uh, Tommy Gould, Sinn Féin TD. Lots more texts and emails and calls and uh, as well as everything else. It's Friday, so we got to acknowledge that the weekend's ahead and we have uh, free food Friday, courtesy of ourselves and Oak Fire Pizza. We'll do some shout-outs after the break. The Neil Prenderville Show. With Tesco Home Delivery. Extra delivery slots now open across Cork. Book today at tesco.ie. Yes, indeed. Free food Friday shout-outs, courtesy of ourselves and Oak Fire Pizza. It'll feed up to 15 of you. You've got about, uh, about five or six minutes now to bang off a text if you haven't done so already tell us who you are and where you are to 0868104106 somebody's going to win pizza six of the large ones with garlic bread potatoes drinks dips and desserts feed 15 of you this is great I love this one an oak fire pizza would nearly do to cheer us up from the January blue our yard has a right of hungry old bunch waiting here for an oak fire lunch Billy at SOS Recovery in Blarney Road. <laughs> Sorry, Billy at OS SOS Recovery, Blarney and the Tremor Road. And there's 12 of them. Thank you for the rhyming poetry. Uh, pizza, pizza, please, from McMahon's Water Street, past the train station, Hungry Bodies there, Henderson Motor Services in the Marina, True Temper in White's Cross, Diner Rod in the Marina Commercial Park, everybody at Magic Vacations in Kinsale, uh, Loftus Demolition and Recycling Dublin Hill, Clinical Coders at the Mercy University Hospital, the Medical Records Department at the South Infirmary. We won't get the 1K bonus. So how about some free food instead? The gang at the Lock Credit Union, uh, also out at Toker Office and the Bandon Road Office and everyone involved in the post offices who are listening. Phelan Pharmacy in the Grand Parade in Patrick Street. Uh, Brushstrokes Painting, working hard in Blarney. Uh, working on a home there. ERA Downey McCarthy, SE Systems in West Cork. Uh, everybody at the Harbour Hill GP Surgery in Cove. Republic of Work on the South Mall, Rathpeak and Fireplaces. Transport Ballyvalan, Cork Distribution in Little Island, Rose Construction in Ballantemple. Liam Doran apparently needs a shout-out, Neil, to cheer him up. He's cranky pants. <laughs> cheer up, Liam, it's the weekend. Long Insulation, good morning to everybody, Ballyvalan. Merview Laboratories in Watergrass Hill. Um, everybody at, uh, where is this? Oh, they're working from home, Bren, or Ben. Brighton, Diaz, Ray and Killian. To everybody, ECI, JCB in Carrick Tool, Caltech in, Glu- in Ducloyne, Sean Dennehy Commercials in Middleton, Doodleberg, Bugs Crash in Montessori, Joe's Edge Hair Salon in Blarney, uh, Sandra at, uh, and Arlene working at the House of Hair in Kinsale, to the Dunhamore Family Resource Centre and finally to the staff at Lara National School in Bandon. It would be a great start to the weekend. So, one more bunch of shout-outs in about 10 or 15 minutes' time. Then we will pick a winner uh, for Free Food Friday and away we go. Shiona says, I rang the Taoiseach's office yesterday after your programme to highlight um, the decades of abuse. He was Minister for Education back in the day and he said that every child in this country is entitled to a free education. 
The same has to be applied here. Uh, I asked them at his government department to listen back to your show. It's shameful, says Shiona. Well, thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Uh, it may well make a difference. You know, it's like it's all of the, the small things, perhaps. It will amount to something in the end. Many, many texts and emails. Can I chat, please, if you don't mind, to Damon Lowry, Damien Lowry, himself a consultant psychologist, joins me by phone. Damien, good morning. Hi, Neil. How are you? I'm well. I know how much you've had to listen to over the past couple of days, and we'll move on to other things in a moment. But um, I think it affects many, many families, yours included, yeah, with regards to your brother. Yeah, I've been listening to your show since the outset there and uh, yeah, intensely to the different contributors and um, look, it resonates with me. I've grown up in a fabling, a two-sibling family. Uh, I'm 43 now. My brother is 45. He's about two and a half years older than me and since my birth, really six months after I was born, he developed quite acutely a very rare and severe speech and language disorder, which was an affection of the brain in some way. We're not really entirely sure. Yeah. Um, but it's called Landau-Kleffner syndrome. And um, yeah, it wouldn't have been very well. It might be now currently like a, a, a paragraph in one of the textbooks that speech and language therapists might read during their studies, but it wouldn't be something central to their day-to-day. You know, I think he's one of 200 people in the world. But never got any help, intervention, diagnosis, wrongly diagnosed probably. Yeah, look, in the early days, we're talking about the late 70s, early early 80s, I know. Uh, different time. I heard a contributor of yours and yourself maybe discuss how things haven't changed in the last 35 years. In fact, they've gotten worse. I would strongly, strongly dispute that. I'm not trying to be too confrontational about that, but like, I think we're really, really at risk of losing sight of how much things actually have improved, hugely improved. Oh, no, no. I mean, the diagnosis has got better. Absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, but the services so then have- following the diagnosis have not. No, I would say that that's probably a blanket term, and I think it's overly generalized. I think some, in some ways services have improved markedly, so they've become incredibly much more multidisciplinary. I know um, like we've kind of evolved as a, as a nation from one of institutionalization to one of actually you know, putting it into the community. Now, we, don't get me wrong, I'm not here to strongly defend the HSE or the mental health service provision in, in, in general terms because I have huge, huge criticisms of it. I think we our funding of it proportionate to our overall health spend is way below what it should be. We're probably spending about half of what we should be spending on mental health on it. So in, in terms of like it being a proportion of our overall health or budgetary spend, it's about 6%. Now, the OECD would recommend 10 to 12%. Yeah. So we're well, hitting about 50% of that. We'll have and to that, agree that to disagree. I mean, you're the professional. You are the, you're involved in the, in the psychology of the mind. That's your job. But all I'm hearing is stories of people who um, um, uh, get ignored, uh, can't get places, can't get any of the therapies, can't get schooling, um, have to go yeah. private all of the time. So I don't know how that could amount to anything except um, Neil what I would say to you with respect because I do respect you greatly is that there's a risk of confirmation bias so when you hear a story again and again and again you think it's the general thing it's not always reflective of the entire situation so it has been the last three days no I hear you but also people with grievances and I would I personally identify with this I'm not trying to speak ill of any of your contributors because I absolutely empathize with them like I'm saying I've grown up in a family which epitomizes this. We have fought so hard for services, been denied them time and time again. My parents are effectively burnt out in their 70s and 80s, still fighting for rights of, for my brother. Now, to be fair, he's doing incredibly well 
And that's down to like fortune, luck, us actually taking out second mortgages on our family home to get him to America where he could be adequately diagnosed. He was psychiatrically diagnosed here in this country, just to put it into perspective. He was diagnosed with childhood schizophrenia and psychosis. And my parents, in no uncertain terms, were told at the time to forget about him, institutionalize him, and have another child. That was the solution offered yeah. by the state, yeah. which is incredibly abhorrent. Abhorrent, like morally absolutely abhorrent. It angers me still to think about that. See, that so that's one of the improvements that you referenced, the closing of those institutional yeah. situations. No. But there's a 75-year-old man being minded now with schizophrenia for 40 years by his sister who has to lock herself in the bedroom. I know, and I'm not going to comment on any individual circumstances. No, I know, I know. That, I, that I, know. I don't know the full story of, because there's always more going on that I think, and to be fair, you know, I think that's ultimately the respectful position to take. But I do agree with you. I do think there are absolutely huge shortcomings on our mental health services. I think this is the common ground we're probably likely to find, you know, with each other. And yes, I think it just needs, I always like accuracy. I like perspective. I think things can easily tilt towards the negative. We're, we're born as humans with a negative-leaning bias. So I'm bound to only hear the negative, negative stories then? Well, people who have grievances tend to speak louder, and rightly so, they need to speak up. They either are speaking up on behalf of themselves or they're advocating, like my family, on behalf of a sibling, a sibling of mine or a family member of theirs, a son, who was vulnerable, who had no, literally in my brother's case, no voice for himself. He had receptive and expressive, and still does expressive aphasia. His brain is damaged such that it's almost like me saying to you, Neil, go to ja Japan or some country where you don't know the language. You can hear everything around you. You can discern between voices yeah. and car and traffic and bells and noises of other descriptions, but you don't understand what they're saying to you, and they don't understand any sound you make to them. So you have to build a common platform of communication, namely sign language, which corresponds to concepts, which you can then like, almost have as building blocks as a language, which is an alter alternative way of navigating the world around you. And he, along with others, are in a similar circumstance or situation. So you have people with mental health problems who are functioning okay, but they've got mental health difficulties. We can all relate to that sometimes. So we go through troughs and peaks and all the rest. Then you've got people with severe mental illness, like chronic, unremitting schizophrenia, which does not permit you to function very easily, if at all, day to day. And you need that in, intense support from a system or a family system or a professional healthcare system, which isn't always delivering. It's almost... Because back in the day, that's where there were the institutions. And indeed, yeah. we used to call them asylums where people went. Absolutely. Now, I think if you were to read Brendan, I heard Brendan Kelly contribute over the ad break there. Yeah. Professor Brendan Kelly, one of the best psychiatrists, if not the best in the country, in my humble opinion. I know Brendan on a personal level, too. And he's written the history of mental health in Ireland. And he speaks accurately. I think actually it constituted one of his PhDs. He's got more than one, if you can believe that. It's easily believable, but he's got one, more than one. One of them was on the history of our mental health and asylum history in Ireland. It does not reflect well on us. We institutionalized too many people too easily. It became a dumping ground. Yeah, but then giving, the, giving over the responsibility to the communities and the families wasn't fair either because they weren't equipped or supported. Yeah, no, look, absolutely. Look, since the 1980s, I think, now again, you're, you're putting me on the spot here, or not that you are, but I'm in my own sense thinking uh, our, our, our proportionate mental health spend back in the 80s and 70s and 60s was greater than it is now, if not, it was in the region of about 10%, give or take, right? Now it's in the region of about 6%. Yeah. Like, that is a reduction. Now, the, the politicians, and I do empathize with politicians because of this 
serial legacy of inheritance where we just consider mental health, with, which is an umbrella term for uh, the, the intellectually disabled, those with mental illness, community mental health teams, primary care mental health services, hospital psychology services, psychiatric services, across the different aspects and branches of the health system, who are ill-equipped, they're under-resourced, they do not have the posts fulfilled. The, the policy uh, documents in relation to all of this, Vision for Change, and I know there's been a revision of that Vision for Change policy, 32% of psychologists promised in that policy document going back a decade have been delivered upon. Like, that's a 70 or so percent shortfall in psychological provision. Now, that is embarrassing. That is specific to psychology. You'll you hear that, that psychiatric or medical posts in the biomedical treatment of CAMS or adult mental health people, which has been quite topical of late, is also under-delivered. But and, if people don't want to work in those professions or those sections of it or the public health section... People want to work. People want to work in those professions. Do not think that this is not that people do not want to work. There are some circumstances where maybe, especially for the medics, I do empathise with my medical colleagues because they've had 30 and then 40% payroll reductions and the, 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 the conditions of work are just commensurate with the pay. They just do not entice people either back into the country or into those... But things. in occupational so therapy, move. speech ter- therapy, all of the therapies and the psychological aspects that are needed with... People like yourself, people, people involved in... Se- but why can't, they, why can't they work then within the public well, part sector? Of the, part of the reason is, look, like, let me speak specifically to psychology because it's probably the area I know most about, right? Because I'm a psychologist by background, etc. I'm a counselling psychologist. There are different types of psychologists in the country. Clinical psychologists, who are probably my closest friends and colleagues and peers, I love them to death. Now, they are the established branch of psychology and they have funded training courses that permit sort of a transition from training into actual posts in the community, wherever, whether it's in intellectual <laughs> disability or in cancer or not. There are two other areas of psychology, educational psychology, which work in schools and in terms of educational assessments and autism assessments, etc. And also counselling psychology, of which I am one, who don't have funded training. Like whatever about being paid to work on placements, which you have some people having, and, and training actually p- paid for, you don't have counselling or educational psychology training courses paid for. That is an incredible inequity. So do not tell me that the psychologists aren't available. They are. There are an incredible number of psychologists available, but they are ultimately ushered into private practice or uh, areas of practice outside of the public health system or HSE in particular because they're actively discriminated against which I know is a little bit strong on my part. Yeah, because I would have thought that it would, the only reason that they would not be in the public sector working is because there's more money to be made in the private sector working. Oh, Neil, are you joking me? No, I'm not. I mean, I'm just like, I mean, I'm a trusting guy. Maybe I'm gullible. Maybe, I don't know. I just thought that, I know, I work in the private sector, there's an awful lot more money to be made. I say that almost as just a jovial retort. I'm not trying to have a go at you personally, don't get me wrong. But absolutely no. What? I supervise trainees on an annual basis. I have two trainees with me at the moment who are paying about 12 to 13 to 14,000 a year to train. They're also paying for additional expenses in terms of personal therapy, which is about 50 to 70 euro per hour. And they have about 50 to 75 hours of that to accrue over the three years of training. And they have, they're, they're working for the, the, the public health system, whether it's the HSE or the voluntary sector, for free. 
So they are delivering a huge amount. They are all available to work in the health system if the health system facilitated them to do that. Now, it will tell you it facilitates them to do that, but it makes life difficult, specifically in relation to counselling psychologists and educational psychologists who are in postdoctoral training. And that is an absolute fact. I've had people who are eligible for panels, panel interviews to work in the HSE one year, and then two or three years later, they're told that the very same placements they identified two or three years earlier are no longer eligible because they're not adequate healthcare uh, experience. That is absolute BS, absolute BS, because specifically I know firsthand one of the placements identified as not appropriate healthcare experience was a placement with me in an acute level for uh, urban hospital, which is one of the main hospitals in the country uh, designated to treat people with acute medical needs and indeed chronic conditions. I don't, I don't so know, man. This is, these are problems that are systemic. So you can, you, can, you can throw your ire, and I've done so many, many times at the HSE in general because it's an, it's an easy dartboard. There are lots of good things about the HSE. Our vaccine rollout program is one specific example, I think, that would identify how incredible it can be, how innovative, how adaptable it can be. It's a fairly straightforward thing, though, to come up with a plan and a process to get jabs into people's arms. The type of help Uh, that parents need with small children. Hang on. It's a no, no. I mean, the the type of conversations I've been having are a lot more complex than that. Yeah, no, look, I agree with you in a way, but no, look, vaccinating an entire population is not an easy thing to do. So I, I don't accept that at all. I do accept what you're saying in terms of Anyone, and I heard a politician, and it's not, it's just, it it goes with the territory, right? They identify easy solutions to complex problems. I don't accept that. The the solutions to these problems are not simple or straightforward. Now, we can try to simplify them by saying, let's resource primary care with psychology, with physio, with speech and language, so that we don't allow problems to fester and become incredibly more complicated, which ends up overburdening community mental health services or, or community health services with issues that c- could have been nipped in the bud or could have been addressed a little bit more earlier, right? So the health system, it's, 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 it's bizarre to me that in the, in the UK, they laud, they, they, they seem to have this position population-wise where they laud and adore the NHS, they revere it. And in the Irish context, for one reason or another, and I don't really understand why, we, we despise it. Yeah, because if, it ke- if something or someone keeps slapping you in the face or closing doors in your face or not answering calls or emails or treating you like some sort of a leper, you're not going to have a kind thing to say about it or them. No, you know? I know, I know. And, and again, look, there are individual circumstances of that and there are people that say to me, Damien, you didn't answer my email or whatever at an individual level. I say, to be fair, I did. I let the ball drop. But 90% of my caseload, 95%, if not more. That's private practice, though. That's, that's exactly no, what... that's probably... I, hold on, Neil. I work in the public health system. I work full-time in the public health system in an acute level four hospital. So I work in the mm. health system. It's not HSE, it's voluntary sector. I do have an insight into this. I'm not, I'm my, I have a private practice, which is a small, minuscule part of my work, or my, my, my daily life. But my general day-to-day is the public health system. So, like, yes, there are, there are circumstances and examples of, of it going wrong. And I, I, under no circumstances is it acceptable for people to be, like, you know, stonewalled or unfacilitated or not spoken to respectfully and actually constructively in saying, listen, this is a gap in our service. We are working night and day to try and fill it or expand it or improve it or whatever. 
but but this is an explanation or part of an explanation as to why things are proving incredibly challenging for you. Now, I do have a, a, a heartfelt conviction in the area of disability. I've grown up with disability as a feature of my life. It's probably part, if not a huge part of the reason, I've ended up in a, a profession that is a helping profession and is a profession that's trying to add value and actually improve the lives of certain I people. I accept that. And you just hit the nail on the head there when you hit the when you said the word help. That's all people want. It's an entitlement to their children. They're as entitled to it as an able-bodied functioning child is, fully functioning child. I, no, look, I agree, Neil. I think we've, in spite of this like conversation, which I know maybe on my part has become quite animated at times, I think we're likely to have more common ground than it may appear. I do absolutely feel, hand on heart, that like the disabled category of our society, do you know what? It's neglected. Like it always has been. It from the ages of asylum right through to the current current day, and even in the aftermath of the troika. And I'm not blaming the troika. We needed a clean house big time. We had things that were just out of order and needed to be cleaned up. But you know what? Disability services got cut in the early stages of that. And to, that, for me, that was a real kick in the teeth. We were expressing as a government, as a society, what our priorities were. But our we priorities are our flyovers priorities. and motorways and cycle lanes no. and the environment no. and greenisms and climate change. Mother of God. And our children are just. I think. I think. Yeah. I think they do, but not right now. I'm saying, get the uh, real Neil. important. No, get the real important things fixed first, and that's families, children, illness. There's a million people on waiting lists, and they're and we're spending billions on flyovers and motorways. I mean, yeah, that can go, that I'm can hold. So. No. No, 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 rightly so. I don't think it has to be one or the other. I think you're falling foul of something that we would psych- psychologically say is dichotomous thinking. It has to be one or the other, <laughs> either or. It's not. Right. It, it needs to be all of that. Like, if you think climate change needs to be kind of suspended, like, I'm sorry, we're going to have probably maybe, maybe right. need to okay. end the call a little okay. bit early. I just have but, different but priorities, you know? No, I, well, I don't know if you do. I don't know if you do, Neil, because I would also share the priority that disability services need to get their house in order. Need, things need to be networked a lot more than they have, and things need to be expedited. There are plans afoot, there's policies here and there, don't get me started on them. I have friends, peers, colleagues working in these disability network services, and they have lots of good to say about them, but they also have a lot of cr- constructive feedback and criticisms perhaps to identify too. And yes, you are right to highlight that, and I think we need to highlight that. We need to target that in a remedied way. Part of that remedy is funding, but do not think that that's the only solution. Okay. It isn't. Okay. We also need to reduce this to systems, regions, networks, teams, management structures, the way things operate. There's a problem. I know the Kerry Cam's case. Pick up the pace. That. Work faster. Work smarter. Work. Yeah, well, say that to the faces of people working in these services. Do you know what I mean? And I think they'll sort of very quickly say... Okay. Hold on a second. You know, we are. We're actually overworked. I know some research I've done, not specific to disability services, but across different hospital settings and healthcare workers and different disciplines within those settings would speak to the level of distress and psychological difficulties that they're experiencing partly because of the environment in which they work. Does that mean they don't want to work in that environment anymore? Oh, I'm not, I'm not I'm, maybe I'm generalizing, and I don't mean to um, against everybody. That's not my point. But there are sections of it that are um, at, at work at a snail's pace. I know of people that left the public private sector, went into work for the likes of the HSE from the private sector for more money 
They lasted months, got out of there screaming and roaring. They couldn't stay. They were bored, witless. Yeah. Uh, look, yeah, no, uh, I'm blessed. I feel absolutely privileged. Why? Because I work in psychology also, but in particular, and I'd say this first and foremost, because I work alongside multidisciplinary teams where everybody works collaboratively and it's, it's functional but you will find teams and services where there's a total breakdown and I would say this is amplified in the mental health spheres it's amplified greatly because why I don't and I fully understand it but I feel like there's this kind of tribalism we feel like we're trying to work towards the same ends we kind of get a little bit competitive about it a bit kind of weird interdisciplinary wise about it it's like we have this kind of you know, difficulty working with each other. Now, that's not always the case, but it will manifest in some services for sure. And then you have the additional burden of under-resourcing. And we're talking about a 50% spend mental health-wise on what we really should be spending on that area of our society. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm going to leave it there, Damien. Thank you so much for taking the call. I do appreciate it. Covered an awful lot of ground. I hope to be in a position to talk to you in the coming days again on another unrelated matter. So I hope you're okay for that next week. But um, for now, good to chat. Uh, I'm sure that people will have an opinion on what he's had to say. Damien Lowry, the consultant psychologist. We're back after the break. Text 0868104106. The Neil Prenderville Show. With Tesco and the Good Grub Initiative. Helping to feed school children in need. Tesco, every little help. Yes, um, I'm going to park it there, lads, and come back to it again on Monday. That and lots of other business. I still have a lot that I didn't get through. And I'm, I guess I'm just very conscious of the amount of people who make an effort to uh, want to come on air or send an email or a text. I'm always very conscious of that, but this is stuff that's very close to the heart. So that and lots more besides on Monday. Free Food Friday, courtesy of ourselves and Oak Farm Pizza. Before I leave you, we have a winner. So this will feed up to 15 of you with the six super-duper large pizzas, garlic breads, potatoes, drinks, dips and desserts. I see this one coming in an awful lot um, and thankfully eventually gets to win. Joe's Edge Hair Salon and Blarney sorted. Uh, listening all of the time. If there's not 15 of you, then I'm sure there's a couple of businesses around you, Joe's Edge, Hair Salon and Blarney, that you can share with. I know you're awfully uh, kind and very sharing out in Blarney. So enjoy the pizza, you guys, and also uh, bring in some others if there's not a... F- well, what am I talking about? I guess you're going to have customers and everything and people having their hair done. So good luck with that one. Our lines will stay open on uh, 0818104106. You can text 0868104106. The Neil Prenderville Show on Twitter at Neil Red FM. If you have a story to share and you'd like to add to the conversation, uh, sit down over the weekend and email neil at redfm.ie. Have a good weekend. Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9 a.m. on Cork's Red FM.